Hey, what's going on, everybody? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by none other than Podbean.com. That's right. We also use this podcast provider, so therefore we can speak from experience and tell you that these guys are fantastic. They treat us great. They will treat you great. They believe in freedom of speech and just basically saying whatever the hell comes to your mind. For a very low cost, you can start your own podcast, have unlimited bandwidth and podcasting space. So you can talk for one hour a month, you can talk for 100 hours a month. Shit, we talk for a lot of hours a month and we never run out of space. We pay a very small monthly fee and these guys have the best rates out there. They will treat you good. They treat us well. And, you know, if you've ever wanted to start your own podcast, now's the time. You're home, you're quarantined. What else do you have but yourself and a fucking microphone and a computer and internet? That's all you need. Plus podbean.com's very great web hosting website. Check them out. They're fantastic. I cannot say enough good things about these people, but if you're going to do this, you have to do it right. Go to www.podbean.com slash vompodcast10. That will get you a special introductory rate, and you will have unlimited podcasting bandwidth and your own personalized website that you can use and send it to the masses out there. So get the podcasting and use podbean.com slash vompodcast10, motherfuckers. And this podcast is also brought to you by CBDmedic.com. Look who's back, everybody. CBD Medic. They gave us our very own special link, VOM Podcast 1-0. How original, right? Use that, and you will save 10% off any order, no matter how big or how small. You can spend $1, but you're going to want to spend a lot more than that because these guys have some great product out there. If you ever had aches and pains, God knows I do. I'm getting older. They have all sorts of things, oils, tinctures, everything out there under the sun. Buy whatever the hell you need because these things are life-saving. It changed my life, and it will change yours, too. I've had a lot of problems sleeping. I've had back pains, shoulder issues, all sorts of shit. And these guys really made a difference in my life. I got a nice little package in the mail. Before you know it, my shoulder pains weren't hurting as bad. My back pains weren't hurting as bad. My knees, my feet, my hands, everything. Rub this lotion on your body, and it just makes you relaxed. It's really good stuff. 100% organic. It will not make you burn out and rashes like this other shit. It won't hurt your body. All natural, all phenomenal stuff. Go to the website, cbdmedic.com slash vompodcast10 and check out their stuff. Phenomenal. Yes. Okay. So we got that stuff out the way. Today, I wanted to talk about my special guest. His name is Alex Arroyo. He is a doctor out of New York. He's done a lot of stuff. Probably the most accomplished person we've had on the show. He's um, got a lot of, he's got a lot of titles has a lot of different jobs. He's done a lot of different things and has a lot of good life experiences. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I sure as hell enjoyed recording with him last night. Went went a little long, and we recorded this one a lot later than normal just because our schedules and everything like that kind of aligned differently. But we finally got together. We've been trying to get this show going for a while now. It's just time wasn't right at the time, and we finally got together. Stars aligned. Everything just worked out, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Talked a little bit about the coronavirus. Uh, got his doctor's expert opinion. And, um, yeah, we just had a really good time, and I look forward to having him back on. So, without further ado, Alex Arroyo. This is the Voices of Misery podcast. This show isn't for the easily offended, so PC Police on Patrol stand by. You've been warned. Now let's join the nerd and nerdette with another podcast for that ass.
Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's another episode of the Voices of Misery podcast. I'm up way past my bedtime tonight, but that's okay because I have a very special guest on tonight, a very new friend of the show. He's a doctor. That means he's very smart, so I'm wearing my finest sweatpants and uh, white T-shirt for tonight's show because I wanted to dress up for this gentleman. He is a man who wears so many hats, you might as well call him Lids. And for you kids, Lids was a place in the mall that you guys aren't allowed to go to because of this whole thing that we're going to get into. But anyway, this guy's a doctor. He's a pediatrician. He is a kickboxer. He's a parent. He's also a podcast host. He is a host of a podcast called the NFO Podcast. We'll get into that as well. He just does a lot of shit, man. I feel like I'm very unqualified to talk to this man, but here he is, Mr. Alex Arroyo. How are you, doctor? It's Dr. Alex Arroyo. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Um... <laughs> I'm doing good, man, actually. Uh, I was a patient myself recently. I had hernia surgery a couple days ago, so I'm on the lamb recovering right now. But uh, otherwise, pain's been pretty good. I'm doing all right. I was going to ask you about that. So how did this come about, the whole hernia surgery thing? Well, when you carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, every once in a while, shit happens. No. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, honestly, I have no idea. I, this has been the million-dollar question. Everyone's like, uh, so how'd you get your hernia? I'm like, uh, woke up and... It was a bulge in my nutsack, and the rest is history. Oh, boy. Like, did it hurt the pits or anything, or was it just something that like, you didn't know until it just hit you? Uh, it probably was there like to, to a small level, and then it's just the muscle opened up, and you know, my gut spilled out into my, uh, my ball sack at one point. But um, it was painful at that point. Before that, it hadn't been painful, so I have no clue how it happened. But uh, luckily enough, I had a couple of couple weeks off from work and um i just said fuck it and i just went to surgery am i supposed to curse on this i don't know oh you can cuss all right go ahead cuss as much as you apologize i'm a a brooklyn boy so it just comes natural jesus christ i I mean i could have swore you listened to the show god damn it we curse all the time on this thing i I, I don't know so (laughs) no that no that's fine but i do want to ask you though because like you are a doctor so, so this hernia thing, did you see it coming as a doctor? Like, holy shit, this is a hernia, or did you just not know? Uh, I didn't see it coming, but the second it was there, I knew exactly what it was. So I, my, my wife's also a doctor as well, and I'm like, hey, do me a favor, grab my balls for a second. And she's like, uh, yeah, I know that trick, buddy. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I was like, no, really, grab my balls. Um, and she's like, you got a hernia, and your balls smell. I was like, yes, thank you, I know. I just worked. Um, so... Uh, she knew it, I knew it, and then I just went to get a confirmatory sonogram, and then that was that, that was the end of it. Now, what kind of doctor is she? Because you're a pediatrician, so you get to touch kids for a living. Yeah, Legal. Exactly. yeah I don't know. <laughs> so uh, I am a little more than a pediatrician. I So I finished medical school, which was four years after college, right? And then I did a three-year residency in pediatrics. And then I did a three-year residency in, pe- uh, sorry, fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. And then I did a one-year fellowship, again, more training in point-of-care ultrasound. So I, I am the pediatrician stationed in the emergency room. And basically, with a total of seven years of training behind my belt after medical school. Um, so th- that's my you know, my lot in life and what I decided to do. My wife, oddly enough, does the exact same thing as I do. She did the exact same pathway. She did three years of pediatrics, three years of pediatric emergency medicine. And then she did it this other year of what's called point of care ultrasound, which basically 
we're taking the diagnosis of ultrasound out of the radiologist's hands and the technician's hands and putting it in the clinician's hands down in the ER so we could actually diagnose things like appendicitis and um, abscesses and hernias and heart problems and lung problems with ultrasound down in the ED. So um, she does the literally the exact same things I do. That's interesting because being a, a pediatrician and like a jack of all trades, basically, like you have to know more. You have to know pretty much everything. You have to be a one-stop shop doc, basically. Whereas in some professions, like you can be like a hand doctor, you can be an ear doctor, an eye doctor, you can be a foot doctor. Is it more lucrative to be in your role as opposed to a specialist in one area? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, probably not. Um, I mean, I, I make more money than the regular general pediatrician for sure. Uh, some of them make a lot more than that, depending on their own, their own practice and how much they're working and how much they're, you know, how many patients they're seeing. It's 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 kind of an odd thing, the whole doctor salary thing. You would think that, like, you know, oh, if you're, like you said, an ear doctor, you make X amount of money. But it all depends on the group you work with, the deal you have, if it's private practice, if it's a group practice. The, the salaries kind of vary across the boards. I mean, you can see some some general making more than a general surgeon sometime, depending on on their area and, and their practice and the size of their practice. So it's, it's kind of odd. Um, but, you know, traditionally, you know, the people who specialize in like one specific thing, like if they're a surgeon and they just do, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, uh, back surgery or something like that. They'll, they'll usually are the ones who make a little more money than the, the people who do a little bit of everything, which sounds kind of counterintuitive because you would think that the person who needs to know a lot of everything should make more money than the person who knows a lot of one thing, but not so much. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Cause I, cause I had a friend that worked in a call center a long time ago. And what he told me was he was like the front line of phone calls. So he would have to know everyone's job. He got paid like nine bucks an hour yeah. and he would say, okay, well I can't solve your problem. I have to get you to a tier five specialist or whatever to fix your tech support. And that person made 18 bucks an hour and they only did one job. So it just kind of makes you wonder, like, what the hell is going on here with the pay scale for some of these positions, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of odd. But uh, again, you know, in, as far as medicine goes, it kind of all depends on where you work, you know, who you're working for, what you're working with, because um, it varies. I mean, uh, you know, I think over the last 10 years, there have been a, a different number of physicians, you know, who are the highest paid physicians in the hospital. And they're all from different specialties. So it, it, it really doesn't matter what you do. You know, what you know, it just kind of matters the deal you could broker and what you're bringing to the table. So you're an essential worker. Obviously, you didn't really miss any days of work during the whole lockdown thing. One thing I did want to ask you as a doctor, because I'm here in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach area, and we only see good golfing down there. Oh, God, yeah. Now, well, I'm not even a golfer. I'm sitting here like saying, oh, God, yeah, like I golf. I don't golf, but maybe one day I will. But I do want to ask you this question, though, because we see the horror story that is New York. We've been seeing it for the past three months and oh, three months plus now. As far as the doctor's office goes and hospitals in general in New York, did you see any kind of slowdown where people were just able to just make their TikTok videos and patients weren't coming in? Or did you see an influx in your own particular hospital? of like patients or was it business as usual for you or did you see just complete lockdown like no one was coming in yeah so listen this whole coronavirus thing totally blown out of proportion no i'm actually oh, joking it's really it's really it's really not um this 
has been one of the more eye-opening things I've ever seen in my, you know, 20 years of medicine. I, I graduated med school in 2002 um, and started my internship at that point. And it's, it's, this has been one of the more sobering things I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, we have never, you know, been in a position where we've seen so many sick patients at one time who are not responding to traditional therapies that we would normally do for people in situations like this, um, that are basically inundating the hospitals, uh, and inundating the physicians, the nurses, the residents who work there and everybody else. I mean, that, that March and April, um, were the, probably the two craziest months I've ever seen in my entire life. We had, you know, physicians who were, I wouldn't say ill capable, but really not under my job description, doing things that they would never think that they would do. Like, you know, usually for, in my zone, um, I'm in the pediatric ER. So theoretically I'll see up to 18, but you know, I, I break the rules all the time. I see up to 21, 25, 27, depending on how busy my colleagues next door are and I'll give them a hand. But yeah. we were, we pushed our, our limit, which kind of, you know, freaked everybody out. Cause a lot of us haven't seen an adult, adult, adult in, you know, 10 years plus. Um, and we were seeing up to age 49 in the pediatric ER, which is frightening. Oh boy. Because things like heart attacks, which, you know, can, can, can come in people uh, who are in their forties and their thirties, um, which we are very ill, ill prepared in dealing with. Cause we don't see that very often in pediatric patients. I've seen my one pediatric heart attack. I don't think I'll see again. Um, and, um, we were taking care of those patients, you know, and we were responsible for those patients and you know, things that we don't normally see in, in, in children that we see in adults all the time. Uh, we had to kind of refamiliarize ourselves with and the pathways I had to deal with them and, and work these patients up. And luckily enough, you know, we're just a door doorway away from our adult colleagues and they were very, very helpful for us because they knew that we were lending them a hand and any questions <laughs> we had or concerns that we had, they were more than happy to answer for us, which was nice. So, um, you know, it really turned the, the hospital on its head for, for at least a good two months. We initially saw this, this increase in patients come in very, very, in the very short term. And then, especially for the pediatric patients, we saw them kind of level out and people were p keeping their kids at home because they were very, very fearful of coming to the hospital. Uh, and rightly so, because, you know, if someone says, Hey, there's a pipe bomb in the train station. You're not going to go, yeah, well, let me go check it out. Hold on. Um, that sure. makes them, that makes the most sense to kind of stay out of the hot zone, which a lot of people did. And oddly enough, we've in the last month and a half or so, we've kind of been in this, this weird situation where the coronavirus has kind of quelled a little bit because social distancing and the closure of restaurants and sporting events and, and gatherings, despite the fact that there's protests going on right now. Um, we, um, we saw this really in this this decrease in the amount of patients that were coming into the ED. Usually this time of year, we see about 75 patients in the pediatric ER. Uh, we're lucky if we break 30, 35 in a day now. Um, so it's been much, much less because people are just terrified to come into the ER. They're calling their doctor and a lot of doctors, like you know, general pediatricians or internists, are basically practicing medicine over the telephone, which is difficult to do, especially in a pediatric patient. You can't examine them over the telephone. They say the ear hurts. You can't look inside there. Um, so they're prescribing antibiotics when patients probably don't need them. They're calling in prescriptions when patients probably don't need them because, you know, the other option is 
opening your office and potentially exposing you yourself, your family to getting this, uh, this disease and, um, getting sick from it and potentially dying from it, or just, you know, saying fuck it and writing a prescription for amoxicillin over the phone when you would never do that normally. So, so people are relying more on telemedicine right now or just no medicine and saying, Hey, listen, my kid vomited twice. Normally I would go to the ER, but, uh, no thanks. I'm going to sit home and ride this bad boy out with some ginger ale and see what happens. And, you know, as I tell most of the most of the doctors that I train, you know, most kids don't need a ton from you. They need you to be smart enough to know when to intervene. But for the most part, they just need you to watch them until they get better. So, um, you know, I tell people I, what I do for a living is I'm a I'm a reassurance salesman. I sell a lot of reassurance because most parents, <laughs> when they bring their kid in, they're sick. They just need some reassurance exactly. and not much of anything else. Um, but, uh, you know, we've seen this 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 decrease in the amount of patients that have been coming in. And it's. It's pretty crazy. Like it's frightening, and it's it's actually job threatening because we went from seeing all these sick, sick patients that came into the emergency department now to seeing nobody, and we went for these, you know, heroes, essential workers. You guys are in the front lines. We'll clap you every every night at seven p.m. to you know my boss telling us we may have to lay some people off this month. We'll see what happens. I'm trying not to do that. Well, th- you, you brought up something interesting that I did want to ask you about because I, I had this kind of position later on, but now I but now I, I, I kind of want to bring this out now because it's a nice little segue here. You were talking about people, there was a big influx in the hospital, and my question to you is this because like you're a you're you're a doctor, you know what the hell you're talking about. I'm just a moron with the microphone who's been bashing the coronavirus for months and how and how I think it's a fake thing. Do you think the media can be responsible? are not just the media, but right now, specifically in these times that we're in right now, that the media can can whip up a frenzy strong enough that people actually think they're sick when they're really not. Because it really seems to me like the media is just building up so much fear that, I mean, my wife and I were at the grocery store the other day. We were six feet behind this woman and she kept looking at us and she had a mask on. She was older and we didn't have a mask on. It was myself, my wife and, and my 10 year old daughter. And we're just standing there in line. And this woman kept, you know, she kept looking at us at the corner of her eye, like giving us these nasty looks. And I felt like saying something to her, but I had my kid with me and I'm, you know, I'm just trying to be nice. And it just seems like there's this fear now where people are just afraid to touch anything. When, you know, if the media didn't blow this thing out of proportion, I really feel like people would just go on life as usual. And if people die, they just die because that's what people do. But they have to put a title on it, COVID-19, the coronavirus, the Wuhan virus, the bat virus. And now they're afraid. Do you think that's possible that people can just be psyched into being sick? Um, I don't think they could be psyched into being sick. You know, if they pick up something else and they're concerned that it may be the coronavirus, we've seen, you know, people get into hysterics thinking that it, that it is. I mean, I, I listen, I have a lot of friends and a lot of them, uh, I, I'm, their, I'm their go-to when it comes to questions for whatever it, and for whatever it is. So in between the months of February, March, April, my phone was blowing up with people that, you know, I haven't spoken to since high school because they were like, Oh, Hey, what's going on? How you been? Everything all right? Listen, I have a question for you. Um, my daughter's got this, you know, funny rash and I'm worried that because, you know, listen, you turn the TV on, you turn the internet on and you see all this crazy stuff, but I can tell you firsthand it's legit. You know, um, I haven't seen sick patients like this in, and pretty much ever, you know, and I, a lot of people compare this to the whole swine flu thing in 2009. I was in the middle of that swine flu epidemic in 2009, and we were seeing record numbers of patients in the ED for that as well. 
But the difference between that and this was that the media, again, got a, got a hold of that one and really drove it through the roof. And I'd have people coming in, and I'd be like, okay, so what's going on? She's like, uh, people are like, uh, I'm just worried that he has a swine flu. I'm like, okay, does he have any symptoms? He coughed once yesterday. And I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> like, I, like, I don't understand. What, like, he coughed oh, once yesterday, but he's got no fever, nobody knows. You got to go home. And then I had parents that, that, that would be like, well, you know, you turn on the news and you see this and – and I serve a population that's, you know, a little bit, you know, they're a little on the poorer side. Um, and parents would be like, you turn the news, you see all these, they're talking about this, it's dangerous, this, it's that. She's like, when should I worry? And I said, you know, I'm going to worry when I swing my door open and there's dead bodies outside. And I felt for the first time in my career that that's what coronavirus was because shit, people were dying all over the place. I work at a different hospital that's that's even in a worse part of Brooklyn, um, in a more destitute, more poor area where, you know, they're probably capable of having comfortably, and that's what people sitting next to each other, 40 people in the ER at one time, um, patients. And I walk in one morning and I'm on the pediatric side and I'm looking at my adult colleagues and there's 98 admitted patients there. And that's not including the patients who are actively being seen. That was 98 patients who were had been seen that night before, the night before that, and were admitted to the hospital. Didn't have any any room to go upstairs because the wards were full. Um, and my friends who were ear doctors are, you know, trying to do the right thing and round of these patients and, you know, write orders for them, make sure their oxygen is filled, make sure they're getting the medications. And they found three dead bodies in two hours of walking around, trying to fight, you know, figure out who's who and get meds and. IV fluid orders and stuff like that because they were that short staffed. These patients were that sick. Um, and like, I've never, ever heard of that happening. Like, every once in a while, you walk around, you'll find somebody who croaked and you didn't know about it because they got stuck in a corner somewhere. It happens. Um, but not three in, you know, less than five hours. It's that's some frightening, frightening stuff. Now, would you attribute those deaths to coronavirus or is that? being the coronavirus in conjunction with something they would have died from anyway. Well, you know, here's the problem with coronavirus is that it's, if, if you're otherwise unhealthy, it's going to probably affect you a lot worse than, than a lot of other people. So, you know, if I get it, I, which I did get it, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. That's on my notes. Yeah, I got a great story. Um, you know, it's going to be like flu like symptoms. It's going to be like runny nose, headaches, abdominal pain, diarrhea, um, coughing, I, so things like that. Some people are healthy and they'll get it and they'll get really sick from it. We can't predict the reason why. Maybe they have an underlying condition that's causing it that we don't know about, some weird genetic thing. At one point, people were linked to a blood type, but that hasn't been proven. But people who are have otherwise comorbidities and health problems like diabetes, like restrictive lung disease, like uh, cardiomyopathies, heart issues, they're going to get a lot more sick from it. Um, you know, I know, I know, I know what you, I know what you, I know what you're leaning towards now about the, you know, mm -hmm. the doctors writing COVID-19 and all the deaths from the hospital. There is nobody that puts a gun to my head that while I'm sitting down doing death certificate and tells me, you got to put this, you have to put this. There is no one doing that. So, and when we do a lot of those things in closed doors, um, cause you, you, you kind of require a little bit of patience and some quiet for it because it's, it's a computer program that you have to put your thumb on and get thumb printed and then write your death certificate. Um, and no one is, uh, and no one is incentivizing us to put coronavirus COVID-19 or any of that nonsense. I've never seen a check from anybody. So. 
Well, I did want to kind of bring that up and thank you for saying what you said. And I do appreciate you for being one of the honest ones out there because there was a senator of Minnesota, I believe his name was Scott Jensen. He was interviewed by Laura Ingram on Fox News and he came out there and he said that he, that hospitals were giving a certain amount. If they're on Medicare, I think they got $5,000 to be their lump sum payment just coming in. And if it was COVID-19 pneumonia, it was 13000 And if it was COVID-19 pneumonia patients and they ended up on a ventilator, it went up to like $39,000. Have you heard of any other hospitals like rival hospitals in the area doing that? Or has, or do you think that is a thing? So, so it's funny because this, this is a normal practice for any disease that you have. So if I take care of you and I admit you to the to the regular general floor, which basically means you're not in an intensive care unit. You're on a regular floor. Your insurance company is going to do what's called a bundle. They're going to say, okay, so you got admitted for pneumonia. For this pneumonia, we're going to give you this. It's the, the, the average pneumonia patient that gets taken care of in the United States that's not in the ICU. We reimburse them for this insurance, $8,000 for the care. Uh, if you're this amount of days, it's $10,000 for this amount of days. You know, they break it down based on the amount of days you're in the hospital and they give you this lump sum on a payment. The, the hospitals will bill like, you know, they'll bill you for Tylenol. They'll bill you for IV fluid bag. They'll bill you for a blood draw. They'll bill you for this. Most insurance companies don't care about that. And they'll look at the bill and say, thanks. It's great. We're going to give you this amount of money because this is what it costs to admit a patient who has pneumonia, the average across the country. So coronavirus is no different. You know, we had to just develop the codes that we, you know, everything is a code. So if you have appendicitis, it's 78294.85, whatever it is. Um, and that code generates a bill and the insurance company pays off that code. So coronavirus is a brand new disease. We had to develop a code for it. So once we develop a code for it, then the insurance companies develop a pay structure for it. So if you get admitted to the hospital and you're on the regular floor, the insurance companies would, would reimburse you because... That's their job because I pay my insurance company to take care of me when I'm sick, to pay out the bills for my doctor, my hospital, and they will pay the hospital what they're owed for their the care that they delivered. So if you go to the ICU, you are going to be getting a higher level of care. So that bundle bill is going to be a lot more money than it is if you're on the regular floor because you have an intensivist, you're, you're in 24-hour cardiac and respiratory monitoring, your medications may be different. They may be using a different modality of oxygen that um, requires uh, more intensive monitoring and more intensive people coming in there and changing the, the bag, changing the tubing, changing the settings. And then if you get intubated, that's the highest level of care that you can get. So obviously, if you get intubated, you're going to get paid more money. So I could take all my patients right now and they can come to the hospital for whatever. They can come to the hospital for an ear infection conjunctivitis, diarrhea, and I could stick a tube down all of their throats and put them on a breathing machine and admit them to the ICU. And what's the ICU going to do? What's the insurance company going to do? They're going to pay me for intubating that patient, putting them on a breathing machine, and their ICU care. They're not going to give a shit about the diagnosis. Well, diagnosis ultimately <laughs> matters, but they're still going to pay out that, that, that average money that they would for a patient who's been intubated now on a ventilator. So it's not that we were get like, you know, oh, if I intubate somebody, I'm going to get $39,000. That's just the normal pay scale that we're normally going to get. Like you go to McDonald's, you order number one, you're going to pay $759. That's just what you're going to pay. So exactly. that's, that's, you know, so all that stuff is, is people wanting to look for a problem 
or wanting to look for a reason why things are happening and not understanding the background and how things work out and how things get done. They immediately say, oh, well, they paid this hospital $39,000 for every intubated coronavirus thing. So they have an in- So now we're being incentivized to intubate these patients. Trust me, we're not being incentivized to intubate these patients. The last thing we want to do is intubate them because that is a very difficult thing to get off of and a very difficult thing to deal with. The very, very last thing I think about when somebody is intubating them because it's going to take a lot of me and a lot of them to deal with that um, to deal with that modality of treatment. So yes, were they getting reimbursed that amount of money, but that's just a pay scale that you get when you intubate a patient and you care for them. It's not, it's not an incentivist incentivization that happens when we do that. And that's why I appreciate that you're on the show because you're a real doctor. You're actually in the trenches. You know how the system works. Now, a lot of people just watch the news like myself included. I read a lot of articles. I watch the news and I watch both sides, left and right. And you, you hear all their thoughts and, and, and just opinions on these things. And you see some people saying, oh, the numbers are much higher, the numbers are much lower. And then you see those numbers, the way the, you know, the right breaks it down, like, okay, the hospitals get paid this much, the numbers are fake. And you see the left say, no, the numbers are much higher. And now they're saying the numbers are way higher now because there's more testing, which is true. And then you look at the death rates are going down because the testing's going up. Do you think this virus is as bad as they're saying? Or like, what advice would you give if you were in a position, like, let's say you took over for that douchebag Anthony Fauci, who I hate completely. I, I can't stand him. He won 80s every time he gets an interview. If you had Alex Arroyo gets on stage and he has to make this big statement in front of America, giving his honest opinion on what we should do to deal with the coronavirus, what would you say? Uh, interesting question. Um, you know, there, there, there's a very big part of me that just needs the world to reopen so we can get back to normal, you know, because... Uh, I'm sure as as we all have, we've all missed a lot of fun things that we're used to doing, you know, going out to restaurants, sporting events, you know, all that jazz. You know, I just unfortunately missed my residence graduation today. You know, after them, they spent three years toiling away in the emergency department. They had a kind of this Zoom graduation, which kind of sucked. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's a part of me that that wants to get back to the regular world. And what that entails is kind of hard to know because we've really never been in a situation that's been this this crazy. But, you know, if I got up there and I had to speak to them, I would tell them that, you know, this is legit. This is real. This is this is some of the sickest patients that we've ever seen uh, with a disease that really is completely unpredictable. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the the interviews with some physicians out there um, when everything was really hitting the fan where they were talking about how if we intubate patients, we kill them. They're not responding to the things that we normally do. And a lot of that was really true. It was, you know, it was the learning curve on this was really, really big. And we really didn't learn the lessons that Italy learned, that China learned, because um, we got hit, you know, as hard or harder than they did, especially in New York City. So um, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, a learn on the fly kind of thing. And you see, you know, Trump out there talking about hydroxychloroquine and now the new thing is steroids and all these other medications. The problem with the new disease is that once it shows up, you you try anything and everything that you think that may work to see what happens. Um, but the problem is that unless something has went through rigorous peer-reviewed, um, you know, institutional review board approved research where you could look at the data, look at the numbers, and then have that study replicated again in a different patient population by different scientists and see that it's re- it's replicatable, it's impossible to say this works. 
or that works or this works because the studies that we have are very small studies you know they're they're case control studies they're pilot studies they're not these large randomized controlled multi-center trials that can have thousands of patients in them so we can really get to the nuts and bolts of what what happens to the, to these patients on medications so it's impossible to say you know that's going to work this is going to work with certainty like you know huh. donald does occasionally um so it, it's it, w- this thing came out and we're learning with this as it evolves as the disease takes its course as it mows through patients after patients after patients uh you know i'm sure the same thing was true for the spanish flu in uh, 1918 when when doctors were learning back then um it when it's new it's very difficult to deal with because a lot of people have their ideas about what's going to happen you know there was some guy who was in jersey i think uh some doctor who's like i've cured 100 percent of my patients i gave them zinc i gave them vitamin c i gave them hydroxychloroquine and none of them got sick it's complete nonsense um he's just because, a quack yeah you, you, it's 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 ridiculous so um it's learning about it and seeing how it develops while it's happening is not the best trial and error to do because you obviously want to have a game plan and go in with a game plan and and know what's going to work ahead of time like we do for the vast majority of diseases that we take take care of um and I think that's why a lot of the, the scientists and a lot of the doctors were kind of backpedaling and saying one thing and then saying another thing because you get one piece of information that looks like it's okay, but then two, three weeks later, you get another piece of information that contra, you know, contradicts that. So this, is a, this, this was a moving target in the middle of a cruise ship, in the middle of a tornado, in the middle of a hurricane. You know, you're trying to hit that target, um, and it's going to be impossible because the thing was just evolving and moving and affecting people differently and then we're seeing different crazy signs and symptoms things that we never saw before um and we're trying to learn about it while taking care of patients who are extremely ill um so it was difficult and you know it it, it was hard getting an idea of what to do and how to take care of this so um you know what I, what, what would i tell the people i'd say listen uh, this this is a real deal. Um, this virus is is particularly nasty, and it it's like a drive by shooting. It it has zero discrimination as to who it takes out. You in the wheelchair, you with the one lung, you with the two kids, you who's twenty five. It's completely irrelevant, and we do not know, um, you know, who could be gunned down by it. So, uh, you know, I would I would try to keep as much social distance as possible for as long as possible until we can get to the point where it's it's faded out or we have some kind of vaccine that could potentially you know be equal to the flu vaccine hopefully or a little bit better we're just hoping that this thing does not drift like the flu like the flu does this is like the whole disease version of a rorschach test in my opinion it's like you can give two people the exact same picture and they see things different ways you give two people the same version of the coronavirus and one person could die one person may be asymptomatic and not feel a damn thing and not even know yeah. they had it it's so strange how this thing works out but I, I do want to ask you this question here because you're a doctor and this is the first time i've had a doctor on the show so i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna wear you out with questions alex that's okay man don't worry i'm used to it <laughs> why are we not closing mcdonald's and wendy's and burger king and all these fast food joints pizza joints but they're deemed essential 
But the coronavirus is killing old people and obese people at a very high rate. Everyone else is completely non-existent and dying. If you're healthy and fit, you eat well, you take care of yourself, you you, you know you run the treadmill, you keep yourself in good shape. You have like a 0.4% chance of dying from this thing. But if you're obese, you have respiratory problems already because you can't breathe because you're gas walking a flight of stairs. If you're old and near death anyway, you have pre-existing conditions, you're probably going to die from this. Why are we not telling people to stay home for the two or three months and uh, maybe buy a treadmill, maybe take this uh, extra unemployment money and, and get a gym membership? Why, why were gyms closed when people were saying on TV that fit people were okay? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why weren't we telling people to get into shape? I, I feel like that's the best way to yeah. combat this virus. Yep. Um, so, yeah, your question is an interesting one. And it's from, uh, I'll answer from a few different standpoints. Uh, so the, the, the first McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King thing. Uh, you're familiar with uh, Bam Bam Baklava, uh, the rapper? His, his no. motto is, fuck, fuck, that's delicious. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know... <laughs> Listen, I love I love me some McDonald's and some uh, Wendy's and all that cherry once in a while, but obviously too much is uh, too much. Um, why didn't they didn't close those places? Because they know that unfortunately the vast majority of Americans uh, obtain their breakfast, lunch, and dinner from those places. Could it be because those are major corporations that have trillions of dollars invested in the economy, and if they would close, the economy would also close as well. I don't know. You know, listen, I, I do a podcast with a, another podcast with a conspiracy theorist. So uh, he's always he's always bending my ear about things like that. Too. Shout out to <laughs> Papa Don and the New Force Order podcast oh, that I do. God, Papa Don. Yes. Um, so, you know, why didn't they close? Uh, I think it's probably an economic thing and also kind of a food sustenance thing as well. Uh, I'll answer the second party question about why didn't we tell people to get a treadmill to eat more healthy, to don't indulge in fatty foods or sweets and take care of yourself. Well, I got news for you. We've been telling people that forever. Um, People don't fucking listen to that shit. People do whatever the fuck they want to do. This is the problem with people. Uh, And this is the reason why when I went into medical school, I said to myself, I am not going to be a doctor for adults. I'm not going to do it because... There's no way in hell I'm going to talk to him blue in the face to some guy who's 400 pounds about losing weight and getting on a better diet and taking care of your diabetes. And they're just not going to listen and then blame me when they're laid up in a hospital because their physician failed them. So people want to do and will do whatever the fuck they want to do whenever they want to do it, because that's just the freedom of choice they have. Um, Do you mind if I interject really quick? Sure. Just really quick, because like right there is a good spot that I wanted to add this in. And my difference here is because heart disease and heart attacks because of obesity was just kind of something that was suggested. Like, okay, you can die if you eat these nasty foods. We're going to keep them underpriced and and keep everything healthy overpriced at the grocery store. So families on a budget have to make a choice. Am I going to buy this sugary cereal or am I going to buy these grapes? I have to buy the cereal because I'm on a budget. Now, with the coronavirus, we are under government-mandated shutdowns. There is real fear now. Before, it was like, oh, fuck it. If I have a choice, I'm going to smoke these cigarettes. I'm going to eat this nasty food. Maybe now, if they are using this fear of the coronavirus and people are taking this seriously, like they never took anything seriously before, you see everyone wearing face masks, even driving in their cars alone with the windows rolled up. That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I know. Do you think they could have used this fear to finally get America healthy? 
So I think they could have, but I don't think it would have worked because people are just creatures of habit and they are going to lean back to what's the easiest thing in the world. Um, and I'll give you my dad for an example. My, my dad, who did have the coronavirus, and we'll, we'll talk about that story in a bit. Um, he's been in rehab for the last, uh, I don't know, month, about a month and a half or so. He has bad arthritis. He has bad diabetes. He has bad heart disease. You know, the guy's worked out like three days in his entire life. Um, and I'm the only one who can go see him in the rehab center because I have an ID and I could sneak in there. And every day I'm like, Dad, you, you got to get up out of the wheelchair. You got to walk. Around. He's 67 years old. He's not an old man by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you got to walk. You got to walk around. I know they're doing therapy you, and I know your knees hurt you, but you got to do more therapy because they're not going to give you enough. You got to go. You got to keep going. You got to walk and get up to the bathroom. And yeah, 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 yes to me to death. You know, it makes mm-hmm. me bring him. Uh, I'm his Uber Eats. I bring him Taco Bell. I bring him. Uh, uh, you know, deli sandwiches. I bring him <laughs> Pizza Hut. I bring him all the shit that he wants to eat because I'm trying to keep him calm in the hospital. Sure. He, he he comes home last week before my surgery, and he lasted 24 hours when he got discharged. Before literally home five minutes, fought with me, fought with my brother, fought with my mother, shat his pants, and fell in five minutes. And Gosh. we basically called the 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 rehab center and said, "You got to take him right back." So people get into these. Into these, in these, into this headspace where they're like, you know what? And I don't know if it's depression. I don't know if it's just, you know, acceptance. With him, I know it's a lot, a lot of depression. That they're just like, fuck it. This is my lot in life. I really don't care. I'm gonna be fat. I'm gonna be out of shape. I'm gonna be overweight. I'm gonna walk up three steps and be completely blown up. And they have zero motivation to change any of that stuff. You know, it's the, it's the people who have like, you know, that low-lying addiction, like, you know, someone who would have a gambler's addiction, someone who would have a drug addiction, who join the gym and then make that their drug and yeah. change, and then change themselves for the better from that. Because you have to have, listen, to, 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 I've, seen, I've seen my friends do this. I wish I could do it. I've seen them transform themselves into, you know, chubby overweight and the borderline of diabetes and hypertension to being bodybuilders and bodybuilding competitions because now their drug isn't food their drug is is the fucking you know is 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 the uh is the clanging and the banging um mm-hmm. and is eating right and is trying to see their abs see their delts see all the stuff in the mirror and there, there's a little bit of a you know of, of an addictive personality when when you become that obsessed with being fit which is great listen if you could harness that and put it into that as opposed to snoring it up your nose that all the power to you, my friend. All the power to you. But most people will make their life much easier by just pulling the trigger and taking the easy way out. The best feeling, they say, is when you run. And back when I was in high school, I used to be in cross country and I used to play football. I used to run constantly in high school. I was always running, it felt. And whenever you run a certain distance and you beat like your fastest speed or you ran a little bit further than you did the day before, you get this thing. This euphoric feeling, this dopamine rush called runner's high. Yep. And that's what I tell people to do if they, because I lost a lot of weight myself. I used to be close to 300 pounds and uh, just listening to people like Joe Rogan, Stevie Richards, just people that talked about keto a lot. I'm like, let me try this. Let, let me see if I can lose weight because I was a lazy guy. I, I never got off my ass. Now I'm at like 175 pounds a little over a year later and it can be done. That's the thing. Like, I'm not going to put anyone down who can't do it. 
because I was that person for years. I was always saying, hey, I can do it. I can do it. But then I was like, yeah, fuck, man, I just want some Wendy's chicken nuggets. And before you know it, you're drinking a soda and you just don't give a shit anymore. So I get it. There are ways you can get your fix. And this is just a message for people listening to the podcast. We have a lot of listeners out there that may be in this position. So I'm just saying to you right now, maybe get a treadmill, maybe go for a jog around the block, come back maybe the next day, go for a block and a half and two blocks and keep going further and further. The more you accomplish, the better you feel. And that's what I call the runner's high. It's just a really good feeling that just makes you feel good for doing good. And then before you know it, you can you can grab those groceries from your car to your front porch and you're not gasping for breath. And you're like, holy shit, I feel good. I want to keep this going. You replace one vice with another, basically. And Exactly, exactly. That's just my If it's a good one, you know, that's important. You know, if you're going to go from eating Wendy's to snorting cocaine, it's probably not the best thing in the world. But, you know, <laughs> it's you a wait like that, too. It's a hell of a good time, though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> not that I would so, know. I actually, I, actually, I'm not a big drug guy, so I told my wife all the time. I said, "We at one point, we, you and I just got to snort cocaine one day. We'll stay home. <laughs> so I do want to ask your expert opinion because there's a lot of, of controversy around face masks. Now, I wore one because a very good friend of the show named Sherry, she sent us some custom-made face masks to the household. And... I wore it maybe twice out in public, and then after that, I took it off because I wanted to kind of take like a stand. Or I'm like, I'm not afraid of this thing. It, it doesn't kill people at the rate they're telling you. I'm young. I'm healthy. I, I don't fit the description of someone who's going to die from this. I don't have pre-existing conditions. I just stopped wearing it. How do you personally feel about face masks? Do you think they actually help people? All right, so... Um... As someone who's worn a face mask every day for the last three and a half months, <laughs> I personally hate them. Um, they're they're annoying. They make you break out on your face. They, it's, it's sometimes difficult to breathe in them, especially with the hospital-grade ones that we have. But do they help you? 100% absolutely. Um, if you have no symptoms, they could definitely decrease the transmission from somebody else who is not wearing a face mask. Um, they could decrease the ability of you touching your face if you touch something that potentially could be infected with coronavirus which again is a controversial thing that we you know people have talked about that in the past before um and they could also obviously prevent you from getting it if you're next to somebody who is coughing or has a face mask on themselves and has it so if they have one you have one you're definitely protected a lot more than other people are um let me transition that into the story of how i got the coronavirus so you would think, you know, a guy who works in the emergency department with his wife who works in the emergency department would have gotten coronavirus from the emergency department. But, oh, no, that's not how my story goes. Um, <laughs> so I have a brother who lives in Maryland um, who's an accountant, and he came into Brooklyn for his birthday, which was early March. So his birthday is March 7th. We had a party, I think it was March 6th, maybe March 8th, somewhere around, I don't know, whatever that Saturday was in the first week of March, second week of March. Um, he comes in at that birthday party in my grandmother's very tiny Brooklyn apartment, um, which is three three rooms. Uh, two of them are only ha- ha- habitable um, because she has her fucking junk in the other room. Um, <laughs> there were, I'd say, probably 20 change people. Um now, let me let me rattle you off the list of people who got infected with the coronavirus because my brother was sick. And this was the time he was like, oh, it's just a cold, whatever. It's not a big deal. I got a fever. I got cough, congestion, blah, blah, blah. Um, who got ill during that time? OK, so I got sick. 
five days later. My wife got sick five days later. Both my kids got sick. I have a, a three-year-old uh, and a one-year-old. They were both, they, they, they were at the party. My mother got sick, who's 65. My aunt got sick. Her husband got sick. My other aunt got sick. And then my other aunt and her husband got sick. And then my mother brought her home to my father who got sick. And then somehow my older son, who's 17, who wasn't there, got sick as well. So 11 people from that one party in that one small apartment got the coronavirus and got sick. I, nobody was wearing masks. This is, this is you know, uh, like a, probably a week before the lockdown happened. Um, no one's wearing masks. No one's social distancing. My brother's passing out pizza to everybody and drinks uh, while he's actively infected. Um, he... Um, he loses. He never was tested, but he loses his sense of smell for a month, which is like the hallmark of coronavirus. Um, and I tested positive. My wife tested positive. My mother, who has a really bad scoliosis as a child and has back rods and has basically has you know the lungs of someone who's smoked for a significant period of time, um, basically one lung, but she never did because it's just a it's just a compression from her spine against her back. She was admitted to the hospital um, and was in the hospital for nearly a month. Um, she was on uh, what's called um, high-flow nasal oxygen, which is basically the step before they put a, a tube down your throat and put you on a ventilator. Um, and the only reason why she did not get intubated is because I brought her to my hospital and I was with her every step of the way, despite the fact that there couldn't be any visitors. But I was the one who was with her because uh, I didn't trust anybody and no one was going to kill her. Um, sure. So I, I, you know, I push for her to be on on this modality of ventilation, which a lot of people weren't using, because a lot of people wanted to intubate uh, coronavirus patients right away because they thought that that would be the what would save them. In reality, it was not what saves them. Um, trying to not intubate them is what saves them. So she was admitted for a month. My dad, who has bad diabetes, he's sugars went into complete, you know, disarray and out of whack when my mom was gone for a couple of days and he didn't take care of himself. Depression, disaster. He got. He he also had the coronavirus. He got sick, but it was mostly his diabetes that was affecting his electrolytes. So he came in in almost a coma. He his CAT scan was positive for coronavirus. He tested positive for coronavirus. He was admitted to the hospital. Um, my aunt, who lives in Connecticut, was also admitted to the hospital once. Was there for like a week and a half. Thank God, not intubated. Went home. Came back again. Got readmitted again because she still wasn't feeling well. She got sent home. My other aunt, uh, who's morbidly obese and sixty-five was sick for like four or five days. They kept calling me and talking to me about it. I'm like, oh, if you're feeling okay, you don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. She winds up going to the hospital. Her oxygen is really low. They intubate her at the hospital. She's intubated for almost a month. She's on dialysis. She loses the ability to walk. She has to regain the function to walk and thought process and blah, blah, blah. And she was in rehab for like, you know, two or three weeks, weaning off of dialysis and off the ventilator. and later, So... You know, one person, small apartment, 11 people infected that I know about. I don't know who else got infected after that, you know, and everybody else, mild symptoms, flu-like illnesses, you know, whatever you want. My wife couldn't smell for a month and a half. She has some thyroid thing that's happening now that we think may be related to, but it's hard to say. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're a healthy guy. And if you get it, you're, you'll be like my brother. You'll probably, you know, be okay and get flu-like symptoms. But the problem is, is that you may pass it to Annie Gertrude or Grandma, you know, Sandy or whomever, or you may pass it to your mailman who's going to pass it to his mother who's on chemotherapy or pass it to the guy at the grocery store who's not going to pass it to his aunt who's a cancer patient. So 
it's it's the snowball effect. And yeah. I saw saw it firsthand with my family, you know, how 11 people picked it up in one sitting, literally in one sitting um, from someone who was not at death's door, who was, you know, wiping his nose with his sleeve and coughing every once in a while and didn't look particularly ill and still having a couple of beers here and there. Um, so, yeah, I think we're, you know, wearing a mask is a smart idea and and keeping yourself covered is 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 the way to go, because preventing that transmission to other people who are going to be more susceptible is uh, is kind of the key why the lockdown's in place. I mean, like there's so many different ways you can get sick, though, and like we, we can't put ourselves in a bubble for the rest of our lives because like let's say like the two of us go to a bar, right? And I'm like, hey, Alex, I have to go take a shit. I'll be right back, buddy, right? And I pull my pants down and I'm drunk already. I got a few beers in me. I don't nest the seat. And I sit down on the regular seat and I get up and I'm like, come back to you. We're drinking some more beers. We say goodnight. We take our cab home. We're responsible. Next morning I wake up and I'm scratching. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with me? And I have an STD because I sat on the toilet seat unprotected. That's not something you can plan for. The thing about this coronavirus is like I, I, I feel like we overreacted by shutting down the economy. I feel like we did way more harm because that's one disease out of a billion. Like I, the number is not big enough of things that we can probably catch out there by different germs and viruses and just, just shit that we don't even know about just yet that'll hit us eventually. Do you think we should always react like this by shutting down the economy, just seeing the damage that it did? I feel like if the numbers were tallied, and I'll pass it to you after I just say this here. I, I, I feel like with the numbers that are tallied with the coronavirus death, I feel like if you added up all the deaths from suicides, from people that are going to die because they're going to kill themselves because they can't get back on their feet and they're freaking out. And other people that are just freaking out because of this whole pandemic going on. And this might have been the last straw that pushed them off the edge because they can't stand life anyway. I feel like that'd be higher than people that died from the coronavirus itself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of tally those numbers up. And, you know, th- th- those are the, you know, we, we, we're we developing charts right now in medicine looking at all this about, like, you know, the secondary casualties of the coronavirus and its patients who can't get to the doctor for their normal diabetes appointment. And now their diabetes is out of control and they have problems with that that may yeah. be longstanding or they may die from that. That patients who have heart disease who can't refill their prescription because their doctor is busy or, or sick or taking care of patients who are otherwise disposed. And now they have comorbidities and they have worse worsening heart disease based on that. So, you know, the, the, these are the secondary hits that are happening because of the coronavirus and because of everything. Um, but, you know, just from personal experience and, and being in the hospital and, and being around for, you know, I was in the center of the measles outbreak that just happened recently in the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. Um, and we went full tilt on that to try to prevent that from spreading to where it was because, you know, measles it, in, in and of itself isn't a fatal disease, but just what it does to the body and how it rewrites the immune system and how small babies, if they get it, can get really, can get really, really sick from it um, is something that we wanted to prevent. So, you know, any, 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 this is why the Department of Health exists. This is why the CDC exists to, to put a lid on these diseases that, you know, may eventually turn into the zombie apocalypse and everybody shooting everybody else in the head here and there. Um, so, you know, w- everybody's looking for the secondary, you know, reason as to why the whole economy was shut down because of the coronavirus. Oh, they wanted it. George Soros and the deep state and the this and the that. Like I said, I, I sit, you know, shoulder to shoulder in a co-pilot with a, with a major conspiracy theorist. So I hear these all the time um, <laughs> yeah. for a podcast. So, is is I have a hard time believing that that that's the case. 
because I have a window into things that other people don't have the window in. I have a window of seeing two meat trucks brought to my hospital and get loaded every hour with the bodies that they were dragging out and throwing into that thing because our morgue, which could probably comfortably fit 30 patients, was more than more overwhelmed with the amount of bodies that were coming out of this. Um, and those meat trucks didn't leave till like a week ago. Um, Ooh, that's what? never happened in, in my career in medicine. And those meat trucks were stationed in front of every hospital in New York City, from Queens to Manhattan to the Bronx to Brooklyn to Staten Island. And they were getting filled because patients were coming in and patients were sick as shit and patients were dying left and right. The, the, the chairman of the internal medicine department just died in my hospital um, from coronavirus. The guy was a legend, amazing physician. And he was on the front lines taking care of it, got it, died. So, you know, this thing is this thing is legit. You know, I think it hit Italy is particularly large as well because they have a very older population there. And again, those you know, old people really didn't do great with this. So um, the, the whole economic shutdown, you know, I, I don't think there's another way to prevent the spread of this and to tell people how serious this was, you know, this new disease that that we we haven't seen new diseases in a long time. You know, it's not like like I probably I guess that the, the the most recent newest disease that we see that you could put on scale with this would have been that's new new would have been the HIV virus that you know reared its ugly head in the eighties. But you either yeah. had to get a blood a blood transfusion or fuck somebody to get the AIDS virus. So it was harder to get. Um yet still new to the point where we didn't know what to do with it. We were worried about this. We were worried about sitting on toilet seats. We were worried about shaking people's hands. We were worried about sharing cigarettes because the transmission was unknown. We, had, we, we didn't know what we know today, what we know today about it. Um, and if the AIDS virus was as transmissible as Corona is, I'm sure in 1980, 1979, they would have shut down the economy for sure as well. Now, it, it, it's very hard to not point towards politics with this because the numbers came out about the Minnesota protesters and the numbers went down after people were protesting apparently. And if you've noticed, when you look at all these left leaning sites like CNN and, and all those other, you know, left leaning publications like Yahoo news and all other bullshit out there, they come, they, they kind of said this was a good thing to gather in groups, but Bill de Blasio, your boy out there in New York. No, he's not my boy. <laughs> I know. But, like, he's basically saying that phase two is going to start and kids can slowly start going back to parks. You can't go to a swimming pool without being six feet apart. You can't use a fucking broad stroke when you're swimming because, God forbid, you spread the coronavirus. If you get out the water, you have to leave immediately if you're done swimming. Like, you have to get the hell out. But people can protest in groups of thousands because it builds that race versus race narrative. And the Democrats historically need at least 90% of the black vote to even stand a chance to win. And now it seems like more people are voting for Trump because they kind of see what's going on here. It's just a really weird scenario in real world that we're living in where you sit there and you, you see these numbers, you hear these stories. And now we have you on and you're giving your honest opinion. And I appreciate you for, for giving us your experience. And it does shed some different perspective on things. But I I just feel like the Democrats are using this as a way to twist into their narrative to get Trump out of office. Like, oh, the economy was great. Now it tanks because of the coronavirus. It just it just kind of feels way too coincidental, in my opinion. And I'm sure a lot of other people feel that way. How do you feel about it? 
being politicized. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, in, in general, I'm not a very political person. Uh, I consider myself, uh, I practice a common sense politics. So, uh, you know, I like a little bit of what the left says. I like a little bit what the right says, but I like the things that make the most sense in my fucking brain. You know, that's, that's, and I wish there was a party that actually aligned with that because that's the one that I would vote for. Um, I think we should abolish all, all parties in general and restart from the beginning because it's really become, uh, you know, an us versus them. And I'm never going to even remotely entertain your ideas. I'm not even going to think about it. It's just going to be about what I want, what I want, when I want it. And that's it. Um, mm -hmm. And both of them have kind of like devolved into that. And it's like a circus at this point. So um, no, nobody can say anything on either side without the other side completely blasting them. And and it's just honestly hurts my fucking head. Um and I, I don't put it past anybody to take a good, uh, you know, a good catastrophe and use it to their advantage, um, Democrat or Republican. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's completely within within everybody's mindset to take whatever's happening and to use it to their advantage to further their goal for whatever it is. And I, I, I'm not one of the people that believe that this was purposely let out. You know, and is a nanite virus that you could turn on and off with a switch that sits in, you know, Nancy Pelosi's office. Um, <laughs> so because I just don't believe in that and that and that, that bullshit. But um, are, will people use this for their their personal gain and for their their movement for it? Absolutely. I mean, it just makes sense. People use everything. People use war for that. For sure, people are going to use whatever they can for their for their own specific gain because that's just the world. The world is is made upon people trying to, you know, get ahead of everybody else by any means necessary. That just makes the most sense for them to do it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, do, do I think this was, that this was unleashed upon the world for a specific reason? No, I really don't think that. Um it's it's hard for me to believe that you know it's hard for me to think that someone or some group would be so depraved to say hey let's just kill a bunch of fucking people with this just so we can close the u.s economy so china could get ahead or so this could happen or so that it's, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around that and to say that you know that's a plausible uh excuse for you know what had happened um i just don't think that's the case that makes sense but i mean i i've never considered myself a conspiracy guy and I still don't. This is the only one I ever brought into. But I don't want to get too down here. I, and we talk about this whole thing a lot on the show, the the coronavirus. I kind of want to get into something a little bit happier now because we've won about an hour here. And there's still so much more to talk about. So I did want to ask you about your, 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 your other doctor occupation where you are a fight doctor. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct. So, uh, um. I am a New York State physician, New York State Athletic Commission physician. Um, so I work with the Athletic Commission on a number of events, and what their scope covers is mostly amateur professional boxing, actually mostly professional boxing, some amateur stuff here and there, but mostly professional boxing and um, uh, mixed martial arts. Okay, so how did you get into this? Because you're a you know, like you're a pediatrician and you get into the fight game. Like, is this like your night job where you're like a fight guy at night and you take care of kids by day and, and, and other patients? Well, Mr. Nerd, uh, you know, the first rule of fight club is uh, we don't talk about fight club. <laughs> Second rule of fight club is we don't talk about fight club. Uh, <laughs> if I can quote one of my favorite movies. Um, so how did I get into it? OK, so it's, uh, I'll make a, I'll make a long story short. So so my dad was always a very big boxing fan. Not that he boxed a fucking minute of his life. 
Um, but he was a very big, big boxing fan. So uh, at any time of the evening, on any time of the day in my house, uh, he was, you know, with his hot box cable box, watching some HBO fights, some Showtime fight, some pay-per-view fight that he was Tyson, uh, Holyfield, Foreman, whomever. So, you know, I grew up on a steady diet when I was uh, a kid of watching a lot of boxing. Um, and I appreciated boxing and, you know, and I watched a lot of Kung Fu movies. I wanted to do karate. And my mom's like, yeah, you're not going to do that stuff. <laughs> um, so she would never let me do it. I fast forward to, I don't know, the nineties. Uh, my dad and I are sitting down and we watched the very first ultimate fighting championship on pay-per-view together. And I, I sat there and I'm like, wow, that was fucking crazy. And for a minute, I didn't know if it was real. I didn't know if it was fake it just was completely surreal and completely different and better than for me boxing because why use two limbs when you could use all four you know why not headbutt a motherfucker in the face um and you know i looked at jujitsu i was like i was like i don't know what jujitsu is it doesn't really look like it's so interesting or exciting but that little guy just won so i guess it's it's okay (laughs) Uh, and you know, I was probably in college when that happened. And then I went to medicine and I was like toying with the idea of starting some training and I was like, ah, oh, whatever. I didn't, I didn't do it. Um, cause I had a girlfriend, I had a job. I was kind of doing other shit, studying to get to medical school, which is obviously a, an easy feat. Got to med school, <laughs> went to Connecticut for medical school. Um, wanted to do pediatrics early. We talked about that cause I hate adults and I never really had any time. You know, I was doing some weightlifting and some some other stuff and trying to run and be healthy, but I really didn't have any time or money to, you know, do any any martial arts training. Still trying to kind of watch some UFC stuff here and there. I was a, I'm a huge professional wrestling fan, so I love that stuff from the very, very beginning. Still am. Um, and when I finished resident, when I finished medical school, I went to residency again, working seventy hour weeks. I did that for seven years, working ninety hour weeks, seventy hour weeks. Didn't have time for it. So I got married in, in medical school. I had a child. My son Colin is going to be 17 next month. He's six six three right now, which is much doing better than I am right now. Um, <laughs> and um, when he was in kindergarten, we enrolled him in a local kickboxing school that was a couple of miles from, like a mile or two from our house, because his te- his teacher was one of the instructors there. She's one of the fitness instructors, so it was like a mom and pop place. Um, run by a daughter and a mother who the mother was like the, the physical fitness trainer and the personal trainer. And the daughter was a, um, at that point, I think a second degree American kickboxer who did sell a lot of Krav Maga, which is the Israeli fighting style. And they kind of like left their old gym and she started a new gym. And it was mostly for, you know, young kids like my son who was six or seven at the time, probably six. So I would show up there and, you know, he would, um, do his kickboxing classes and I'd kind of chill and she'd always toy with like, yo, we should do an adult class at one point. Cause they had like a teen class. Yeah. But I was, t- I was already at that point in my thirties. So I wasn't going to do it. Um, but then we had some teenagers and also my trainer, her name is Andrea D'Angelo, um, who was at that point an amateur kickboxer who was fighting locally at shows like once every three months. So a lot of our, our kids from our shows would fight. She would put on some fight shows uh, at our gym with other gyms, we bring other gyms in. We do what's called smokers, which is basically like kind of under, under the radar fights between, you know, a couple of four year olds here, a couple of eight year olds there, a couple of 10 year olds there, a couple of 15 year olds here, match them up based on style and weight and experience and then let them go. Um, 
So I was a fight doctor for her and one of those smokers. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing at that point um, because there's really no... Now there's like, you could take a class in it and do things through the American Academy of Ringside Physicians, but back then it wasn't as uh, as, as rope. may have been, but I didn't know about it. Um, and then I used to go watch her fight, my trainer fight, Andrea, at, um, at, at a few events locally in Manhattan and Long Island um, as the crowd. So... You know, and then as I'm sitting there, I'm watching what the doctor does and how the doctor did it. And that was kind of like my focus when I went there and to see what the story was. And I had gotten in touch with the doctor that was doing a lot of those fights, this doctor named um, named Sherry, who's uh, one of the greatest ringside physicians that I know. She's Sherry Wolken. She's fantastic. The woman knows the fight game inside and out. Um, And she taught me a lot. Um, Turns out that my trainer's trainer, this guy named Louis Neglia, who was putting on these fights. He puts on Ring of Combat. He puts on Combat of the Capital. You know, one of them is kickboxing. One of them is MMA. He got into a falling out with his physician, Dr. Wolken, and he needed a doctor to kind of step in. Now, at that point, I, I kind of got the bug, and I was doing some local shows here and there. I did some shows in Long Island. I did some shows in Brooklyn. did some amateur boxing stuff here and there. I was doing a lot of the professional wrestling stuff because every professional wrestling event needs a physician ringside to clear the to clear the wrestlers prior to them wrestling, sure. which is kind of a joke uh, unless you're like eighty, you know. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, unless you're, you know, it's you're like draws now with these shows, right? Like the eighty year old guys, like they bring out like hacksaw Jim Duggan and oh yeah, they, you know, you get you get your Jerry Lawler's having heart attacks over there, Greg DeHaan Valentine, so it, it could be legit. So I was doing a lot of that. So and. That's a lot less of a uh, of a, of an issue than doing the actual, you know, I, w- I won't say real fighting because Papa don't get mad at me, but real fighting. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was kind of bouncing back and forth doing a lot of these local independent shows um, and then doing some more and more local kickboxing stuff, you know, some smokers here and there, some other shows, and then. Mr. Neglia got my contact information from my trainer because he was my trainer's trainer. And then I've been his ringside doctor for the kickboxing stuff that he does in New York probably for eight years now, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and then from there, I, I branched out to a bunch of other different promotions. Glory Kickboxing, which is not under the uh, kickboxing in general, is not under the Athletic Commission for some reason. It's under the, uh, the the a separate separate organizations like the World Kickboxing Association or the International Karate Association that kind of sanctions these. So I was doing shows for Glory, which is like the biggest professional kickboxing in the, in the world now. I was doing shows for some amateur mixed martial arts stuff, some other kickboxing stuff. I was doing stuff at Gleason's for Gleason's gym a little bit here and there, the pro wrestling stuff, blah blah blah, all this stuff back and forth. Because at that point, which was my real passion was MMA. Um, and that's what I really wanted to break into was not legalized in New York. New York was the last state to legalize MMA. And I think they legalized like in 2017 or something like that, 16, yep, 17, somewhere around there. Um, so th- there was really no need for me to join the athletic commission because I really want to do any, any more boxing and MMA wasn't there. So I was doing, I was getting all my fill of everything without having to deal with the bureaucratic stuff. So the second MMA gets legalized in New York city, my application goes in for the athletic commission. Um, because I really want to get on the ground floor for that. And, and I did, um, oddly enough, um, oh, by the way, I didn't mention that 
all the while this is happening, I'm training in Amer- myself in American kickboxing with some cross training in jujitsu and some cross training in some MMA and some, you know, back and forth stuff here and there. Uh, mostly with my trainer in Brooklyn for the most part. I did some stuff with in Chris Weidman's gym in Long Island with some people I knew over there, kind of sparring around with a few people there just to prep for some fights that I had. But uh, all that, all that's happening all the while while I'm doing all this. Um, so I joined the athletic commission, and I, uh, I'm also on top of all of this. Every once in a while, the the house doctor for Madison Square Garden, because my hospital has the contract to send the physician for to every event at MSG that's being held there, be it you know hockey, basketball, the Taylor Swift concert. Uh, WNBA, huh. mixed martial arts, boxing. We always have to send a doctor to the garden so they can cover the house and cover the fans if they have any any you know injuries. Somebody falls down a flight of stairs. That's the, I'm the person who takes care of them. Has a heart attack. I'm the person who takes care of them in the back of the house. Um, it's a pretty good perk because I, I get to go see the conscious. Because one of my best friends who runs this program, who's also a physician that works with me in Brooklyn. You know, I'll, I call him up. I'm like, hey, Matt, uh, you know, uh, Pearl Jam's in town this week. Uh, I want to be the house doctor for MSG. He's like, yeah, no problem. So, awesome. you know, I'll get, the, you know, the pick of the fill and I'll kind of hang out in the back and you know, Eddie, Vedder, Eddie Vedder will walk by me or, you know, whomever the, uh, you know, LeBron James or whoever's playing that night. So it's a pretty dope gig. So, um, you know, I, for, I forgot that I had that in for for UFC as well. So I kind of do that when I don't get selected for the Athletic Commission to work the UFC fight at MSG or for, you know, uh, I can't do it at any, any, any other venues, but for mostly for MSG, because those are usually, usually the, uh, the, the bigger fights. Simple yes or no question here, because you just said something that piqued my interest about live shows and doctors being needed and you being licensed in New York. Do they have them for studio audience shows by any chance? Like, do they have to have a doctor at those events just in case like someone in the audience happens to faint? Define studio audience show. Rachel Ray show. I'm a no, huge fan of Rachel Ray. I, I, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, I, th- I think you have to have a certain number of, of, uh, of, of fans there. Mm-hmm. So take, so take for instance, the Barclays center, you do not, apparently the law, they're under the, the seat limit for the law for a physician. They have EMS on site that could take care of stuff and then do transport from there. They could speak to a physician at the hospital they're going to go to, but they do not require a physician on site because their stadium has less seats than MSG and they fall below the, you know, that seating limit. God damn it. I know hardcore listeners of the show popped when I bought up Rachel Ray because they probably knew where I was going with this whole thing. You love Rachel. I know. Oh, I love her. Hey, so let me ask you about the whole jujitsu thing because I've heard a lot about it and like, it's basically like just rolling around trying to choke other people out and just having a good time, the camaraderie. But I hear it's like some magical thing to learn and, you basically learn a lot about yourself. Have you learned anything or did you learn anything about yourself that you might not have known before training for jujitsu, training for kickboxing and all these other things that you were training for? Did you Uh, find like you're capable of more than you were? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. So I I, I didn't do a ton of jujitsu. I did, I did some of it. I, I'm very low, low level jujitsu. Um, you know, I, I'd barely classify myself as a white belt when it comes to that stuff. You know, I did a lot of training with a lot of the Matt Serra guys, who trained under him. Um, and it's an interesting thing. You know, you, there was a video recently on the, like it's, it's actually, I think it's a few years old. It's this, this, this somewhat smaller kid getting bullied by this somewhat bigger kid. The big kid's kind of pushing him around. The kid's like, listen, leave me alone. And the kid 
the big kid tries to throw a punch at the small kid. The small kid dodges, kicks him in the face, grabs his arm, does a spinning, like, you know, aerial arm bar and brings him down and is basically tearing this kid's fucking arm off. Holy shit. It's all crazy stuff. Yeah, basically. And you, you look at that and you say to yourself, that kid knew nothing about martial arts when he walked into a dojo probably 10 years ago. He learned all of that while he was there and he just took that muscle memory and implemented it in a situation that he's probably never been in before he's been in he's been in simulation in the gym probably a thousand times where he's gone over that he's gone over these moves he's gone over the you know the muscle memory that you need to do it and he just flawlessly executed it without batting an eyelash without thinking about it twice without worrying about anything else that was going to happen and that is the magic of martial arts. That's the magic of jujitsu. That's the magic of kickboxing. It's getting to a point where something like that will happen and your body instantly reacts because you've trained it to instantly react like that. Um, and it happens. And it, it, I think every martial artist has that moment where they're like, oh, wow, that just happened. Um, that's interesting. And because it, it's almost this unconscious thing yeah. that happens where y- 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 your memory and your muscle memory and your experiences take over and it's, it's just like being a physician like if you're a surgeon if you're inside the operating room and shit's hitting the fan you just do things that you instinctively know how to do and you do them subconsciously and mm-hmm. i think that that's the point that you, you get that that everyone is looking to get to when they are training in martial arts and training there um most people don't make it. Some people do. Um, and I think that, you know, that's what you're looking for in that question you asked. It's like you learn that about yourself on that journey. It sounds kind of fucking corny and cliche and you know, kind of silly, but and I would call myself out on it. But, you know, if, if I didn't get my black belt a year and a half ago in kickboxing um, by fighting for an, an hour and five minutes straight. Um, straight. So it's... Ooh. It's and sustaining a broken nose, two broken ribs. <laughs> uh, you could probably hear it in my nose that it still hasn't healed because I still sound very nasally. Um, so it, it's it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't experienced it, who hasn't done it. Like right before I took my test, I took my test in October of 2018. Um after training for almost a decade. Um, and my mother-in-law, who is a very old-school Israeli woman, whose husband is a doctor, and he, does, he hasn't done any physical thing in his life, and her son, who's also kind of a doctor researcher, who hasn't done any physical thing in his life, she's like, why would you do this to yourself? Like, what are you going to gain by having 50 people beat you up for an hour? Like, I don't understand. Like, they're going to hand you this this piece of rope at the end of it and you get it. And I had, I had a hard time answering her question. I said, I said, yeah. she goes, cause you can get hurt. You can, something seriously could happen. You could, you know, lose the ability to make money for your family and do this and do that and whatever, you know? And it was one of those things that I had a hard time answering. And then I said to myself, I said, well, what's the reason why people stare at Mount Everest and be like, you know what? I'm going to climb that fucking thing. Or they, you know, decide to go to medical school or just got to go to law school and say, you know what, I'm going to fucking do it. Yeah, you, you get money at the end of that. But there are certain things in life that 
you cannot buy. There's certain things in life that you know you 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 cannot sneak your way into, or swindle your way into, or marry your way into. There's certain things in life that you just have to earn. Um, mm-hmm. And some of them don't have a monetary compensation at the end. Some of them at the end, they just have the feeling that you get from accomplishing something that not many people in the world have accomplished, like climbing that Everest, like climbing that Kilimanjaro. Um, and, it, and it sounds kind of odd. I mean, uh, it sounds kind of weird. Like I took this test. It was a two day test. I had to train for, for, you know, a few months up, <clears throat> up to that going to the gym and doing other classes and doing specific things and learning, you know, some pose. It was like a whole big thing to do. It's hard to explain, but the, the, the end of end all be all of it is, you get in the ring, they gear you up, you put your headgear on, you put your shin gear on, you put your gloves on, you put your mouthpiece on, and you got to fight 50 to 60 one-minute fights with a 30-second rest in between against about 40 to 50 different opponents. Like, as you can imagine, after one or two or three or four, you're already gassed, and you got people coming at you who are trying to take your fucking head off because either they've been there and they want to make you earn this, or they're trying to take you out because they know that when they're there in two years, you, that you're going to try to take them out. Um, and they're not going to hand you this. And they're fresh. And you are very far from fresh by the time you get 10 fights in. Um, they, I've done a lot of things in my life. Like I snowboard. I paintball. Uh, I love doing adventurous shit like jumping out of fucking, you know, bungee jumping, airplane jumping, whatever, all that crap. At the end of that test, when I when I finally finished that last fight, um, which I had to pick the person that I wanted to fight, and I picked this guy that I know who is a professional kickboxer who beat the fucking piss out of me, um, and I'm not a professional kickboxer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, when I fin, I had my son with me who who he he finished his black belt test probably four years prior to that when he was like uh, ten, I think, um, which is a different story. When he lifted me off the ground because I could not physically get off the ground anymore because I had two broken ribs and a broken nose, um, the feeling that I had, the dopamine dump, like you talked about before, like the runner's high, the dopamine dump, the adrenaline dump that I had in my body was like nothing I ever, like I'm talking about it now and I'm getting goosebumps, was like nothing I've ever felt in my entire life. Mm -hmm. It was a a super odd feeling um, and... I spoke about it with people in the, you know, after that, and they've had the same feeling. And it, it's, it's, it's something that you wish you could bottle, that you could bring out on one of those shitty days that you're having that you could just, or if, you know, those days you need a boost that you could just feel because it's like nothing I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, not even after getting your first blowjob. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, it's so impossible to kind of like wrap your head around and describe and explain, but I'm assuming it's, it's the same feeling you get when you trek to the top of Kilimanjaro. It's the same feeling you get when you, you know, you do something that, you know, when you land on the fucking moon and put your plant your flag on there. It, and that's the feeling that I told, you know, my mother-in-law. I said, well, you know, the mountain's there. People climb it for, for, for they're not getting money. They're not getting, you know, they're getting, they're getting fame. No, nobody cares anymore. They're doing it because it's there. And it's mm-hmm. because it's something that internally that you want to do to prove to you, to prove, you know, you, to prove to somebody else, maybe, to prove to whomever that you're strong enough to deal with this, to do this, to go through this, and to join a club after that that is elite, um, and to look at somebody to know that they went through the same thing that you did, and that you went through the same thing that they did, and have that kind of like camaraderie between them. 
I get you 100%. And that's the reason why I hate the fact that people make fun of other people's goals and ambitions because people get their rush, that feeling that you just described in different ways. There are some people that play PlayStation 4 games all day long and they get that platinum trophy in Red Dead Redemption 2 and they feel that same feeling. And it's a weird comparison, but it's a very valid one because yeah, that person gets sure. their rocks off that way. You got your rocks off that way. I may get my rocks off riding a bike for 13 miles straight or doing a tour de France or doing something different. Someone can climb a mountain. People just get their rocks off in different ways. That's why I hate the judgmental people out there that really get upset that people don't feel the same passion that they do for something different. Everyone's built a different way, you know, and we're all wired differently. Some people are capable of some things. Other people aren't. So I completely understand your comparison 100%. Personally, I haven't felt that feeling yet i don't know what i'm capable of maybe it's podcasting maybe it's doing a big interview one day maybe i'll get that rush then but until then like i just don't know yet so i'm not going to judge anybody else on what they feel is their peak of the mountain their uh their their bucket list of sorts or whatever so that's a very good story and i'm glad you shared it it was awesome but being a doctor in fighting this is something i've always been curious about have you ever suggested, like, have you ever seen a fighter get beaten so bad? Have you ever suggested to someone who might be, and I'm not asking you to name anybody because, I mean, like, that's not fair and I would never ask you to do that. Have you ever seen a fight so bad and, like, you went and checked on a fighter and you're like, holy shit, this guy can't fight. You have to call this off. But the corner is not trying to end the fight, but you're like, yeah, just do it. Have you ever seen that? Well, the um, the good thing about about this, well, it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, about the sport is that um, th- there are lots of people who could end a fight, and uh, it's it's usually justified and warranted. So the referee could definitely end a fight, the doctor could end a fight, the corner could end a fight, the fighter could end a fight. So you have a few people there who um are you know capable of actually doing that, um. You know, I've seen fights end where I'm like, oh, I thought that was an interesting right, you know, reason why to end that fight. I don't know if I necessarily would have done that. And a lot of those calls kind of come from the referee. The referee gets a, gets a lot of the shit inside there when they're the, you know, the third man inside there to be the one to call the fight. Because, you know, they may see something. They may see a flash in somebody's eyes that is concerning. Um, they may see something that, that other people didn't see. When somebody went down and, you know, do they make the call right every time? No, you know, you, you can't be perfect when it happens, but you kind of you kind of have to make the decision with the information that you have in front of you. It's, it's, it's very similar to emergency medicine. You know, I have a certain amount of information in front of me and I have to make a, deci- a pretty quick decision about what to do with a patient based on a very limited amount of information that I have had a limited time to process. Um, you know, this is not, let me go home and study about this or, oh, maybe let, let me just click a and see if, they, if that's the right answer. The, you know, there's no answer at the end of that. So I've definitely been in situations where, um, I've been concerned about a fighter and I've kind of sat to myself and said, oh, Hey, uh, man, I, I think I should probably just call this and see what happens. Um, the important thing is, is kind of twofold. One, you have to know your referees. And, uh, you know, I have a pretty good relationship with a lot of the referees that I work with. A lot of them are my friends. A lot of them I've worked with for years now. And some of, a lot of them I trust, the vast majority of them I trust to make the right call or to look at me or I'll look at them and, you know, we'll give each other this wink that I'm concerned about somebody. 
You know, I work with, you know, specifically, I'll give you a name, but Big John McCarthy. Um, oh, one of Big the, John. Uh, yeah, Big he, John. He's, he's really, 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 really good guy. Um, when, we're in, when we're in the back prior to going out, and if he hasn't worked with you as a physician before, he'll say, hey, doc, listen, you know, I have this thing where if I'm worried about a fighter, I'm, I'll call you into the cage. Okay. I said, okay. And if I put my hand on your shoulder and I squeeze your shoulder, that means I'm really worried about this guy. And I want you to do a really good thorough check of this guy um, because I'm likely going to call this fight. So it's good to have that relationship between the physician and the referee where you both lean on each other and you both, you know, if Big John does that to me. I know he's probably going to call it and I'm going to back him up on calling that fight because he saw something that I didn't see and I'll confer with him and we'll chat about it. Um, mm -hmm. So having that relationship with your referees is an important thing because they're you know, you're close, but they're a lot closer than you are inside that inside that ring. Um, and there have been times where, for whatever reason, maybe a referee is a little inexperienced and lets the fight go. And I'll walk in and I'm like, yeah, we need to be done with this right now. Um, and there have been times when the corners called it. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting call. You know, maybe they know something that I don't know. Maybe the fighter whispered something to them with, like, I broke my hand or I can't see out of my eye. And that corner's like, all right, fuck it, we're calling this. Because to their detriment, fighters will not tell the physician who's taking care of them that anything is wrong with them. They will not tell you before the fight. They will not tell you during the fight. Maybe you're lucky they'll tell you after the fight. Because they know that if they tell me, oh, well, you know, I got poked in my eye the other day and I'm really having some blurry vision out of, out of this eye. Now I'm going to do more intensive eye testing on you. And I'm probably going to tell you you can't fight this fight. And now you got 50 people in the crowd that paid to see you. You're not getting your money that you, you know, that you had. If you, this is like one of these you know, low-level fights that you were promised, you trained for the X amount of weeks to get things going. Fighters are their own worst enemies when they come to this. And they will walk in to fights injured, knee injuries, with eye injuries, with rib injuries. And they will. I had a guy one time who actually just fought in the UFC a couple of days ago um, who tried to fight a fight night of with a broken hand. So I'm oh. examining him, and, I, and he, was, he was the main event. And I, I, I push on his hand. His hand looks deformed. And I push on his hand, and he winces. And I'm like, and I knew this guy well because I examined him like at least 20 times before this. And I'm yeah. like, what happened? He's like, oh, it's nothing. I said, no, your hand is broken. He goes, I know. I, just, I don't want to tell you. I, I just, I'll fight with one hand. I said, no, we're not going to go out there and fight with one hand. Please let me fight with one hand. I got all these people. I'm the main event. I said, that is irrelevant to me. I said, my job is not to worry about what, what's best for the crowd, what's best for the card, what's best for the fans. It's what's to worry about what's best for my fighter. Because if you go out there with a broken hand and That's you throw right. that hand, because you, I know you're going to throw that hand, you're going to break it worse. And potentially down the future, you may not be able to ever do anything with that hand again. Like fight, like work, like pick up a beer, like drive a car. And you're living in the moment right now. You're not living in the future. So it's my job to protect you from yourself. So that's, you know, off the top of my head, one I could think of that I had to, you know, pull the main event of a kickboxing card night of because, the, the you know, the guy who was the champion had a broken hand and still, you know, and this is, which is frighteningly enough, you know, these Russian guys who want to, uh, you know, I had to worry about getting stabbed on the way out of the, out of the building. They're fucking beasts, man. Yeah. Now it's, forget it.
<laughs> now, have you ever had a fighter thank you for maybe like talking some sense into them? Because a lot of these guys fight for pride. They fight for money. They feel like their body is their dollar sign. And yep. hey, I'll fight, I'll, fight, I'll fight with one hand because I don't give a shit. I have to win that belt. Have, have you ever had someone say, hey, thank you for, for stopping me? Or maybe someone hold resentment to this day because you didn't let them fight. Or maybe you call the fight too early. Um, I, having someone thank you for stopping a fight is very rare. <laughs> I've had a guy who came in uh, for his pre-physical and the guy was nervous as fuck. Like, <laughs> like, like ready to pass out nervous. And I'm like, yeah. oh, you all right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm all right. And his heart rate was like through the roof and his blood pressure was through the roof. And I'm like, uh, listen, buddy, I don't think you could fight. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. He's like, thank you so much. <laughs> and he like walked out and he was like thrilled that I told him that he couldn't fight because he, he didn't want to be there. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go through it. And he was done. So he was thrilled that I told him he couldn't fight because like he, he was checked out before he even got there. Um, but, uh, stopping a fight, I, I haven't had anybody tell me thank you, but because usually the, it's an adrenaline is pumping. Like you said, money's on the line, this and that they don't want to do it. Um, I've had, you know, specifically, I, I could tell you uh, one fighter who's probably the nicest guy on the face of the planet. I mean, I, I've been ar- around a lot of, a lot of athletes, a lot of martial artists. Um, most of them are very interesting characters and they kind of have to be like that. Like the Conor McGregor's of the world, they have to be really high on themselves because um they are uh you know that's how they make their money by you know by their talking game but uh but one of the absolute nicest guys on the face of the fight planet is uh steven wonderboy thompson um he the guy could not be a nicer dude you know he he came off a loss at msg and i was in the back i wasn't his primary doctor but i was helping doctor care of him and the guy was thanking just lost at at, you know at the probably one of the biggest fights of his career at msg and he's thanking Doc. Thank you so much for being in there for me. I really appreciate it. Like you know, I, like I, I'm so lucky to have you guys like watching over me and worried about me and concerned about me. And I want to thank the coaches. And, and, and there, there's no microphone back there. There's no interview. There's it's just him, two doctors, his trainers, and the guy is like profusely th- bleeding from his face, profusely thanking us for taking care of him. So you know. More people were like that in the world, it'd be a lot easier. What's more rewarding for you, fighting or being the doctor? <laughs> uh, it's hard to say. Um, I've had two two amateur kickboxing fights outside of the whole black belt testing thing um, where I fought. I won both of them, thank God. Um, but, undefeated. Uh, undefeated, yeah, exactly, undefeated. Like uh, Eric Bischoff at WrestleMania. Um, <laughs> That's true. Yes, so um, winning a fight that you train for, that you dropped 25 pounds for, 30 pounds for sometimes, um, in front of you know your son, in front of your wife, in front of your girlfriend, in front of your family, is pretty exhilarating. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a feeling that, like, similar to, like I said, you know, taking that test, you, you get this, this crazy rush, especially when you put a ton of effort into turn of work into it. Losing a fight sucks as well, I'm sure. You know, I've seen a lot of fighters who, who lose a fight um, after they trained as hard as they could for it because the other person was just, was just that much better. Um, to, I think to answer that question, it's probably fighting and not taking care of the fighters because despite the fact that a lot of things can go wrong when you're fighting, you are in control of what happens there. 
other things sometimes come into come into control when you're trying to take care of a fighter. Things you can't see. If someone has a very slow bleed in their brain from getting knocked around too much, um, you know, you have this window period where you're totally fine and everything looks great until the brain start the blood starts to put some pressure on your brain and starts to you know incapacitate you and make you unconscious and stops your breathing centers. That's a lot of scary shit. There's a lot of scary things you have to think about when you're taking care of a fighter after they've been in the fight, before they've been in a fight, when you're clearing them for a fight um, that have to kind of cross your mind, um, which kind of put a significant amount of undue stress on you and your brain and your ability to really enjoy things. You know, I don't necessarily in we, we get assigned to fights. If I'm with the athletic commission, basically we kind of rotate out and we, you know, I'll get this fight and then I'll have, another fighter three you know three fights later then i have another fighter three fights later and my job is to examine that fighter score them to the cage check on them in in the, in the fight in between rounds and then once the fight's over take them to the back and examine them and clear them or put them on a medical hold where we could check them again um so a lot of the times i'm really not enjoying despite the fact that i'm sitting cage that i'm not enjoying it the way i would if i was sitting in the crowd with the beer and a popcorn and just you know kind of hanging out because I'm looking for particular things. I'm looking for tells that the fighter's giving me that something is hurting him. I'm looking for something that I need to check up on in between rounds. Oh, I saw he got poked in the eye. I want to take a look at that. Um, so I have to watch the fight with you know a little more of an intense eye than I'm used to doing it when I'm home. Though the fact that you know I'm a student of the game and I like to study um and see you know techniques and see what people do and what's effective and you know i know so i watch it closely to begin with but i'm watching it from a different perspective when i'm doing the doctor thing than when i'm doing the fan thing um and it's a little more it's a little a little less enjoyable for me as a doctor because i'm there working and you know if i can't i can't jump up and go oh fuck that was a great punch because uh i'm sitting and i may be mic'd so (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't look so professional when I jump in and you go, oh, shit. Um, sometimes you want to. Uh, sometimes you have to because you have to get in the cage immediately and take care of that guy who just got knocked the fuck out. But there have been times where I'm like, oh, fuck, that guy got knocked out. I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to get in the cage because that's my fighter. Because um, uh. you forget because you kind of, you know, you, you're, you're really deep in the woods. But, uh, you know, it, it can be somewhat less enjoyable to me because of that reason when I'm the, when, when I'm the, when I'm the doctor. Now, this may be a stupid question, but I do want to ask it because I'm very interested in this now. I watched the Jorge Masvidal, Nate Diaz fight. I was there. Oh, my goodness. You it see was, now. It, it, was, it was my boss who called that fight. So, this go ahead. Perfect. Ask away. This is perfect. Now, the reason why I wanted because I, 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 I kind of felt that Jorge Masvidal was, was going to win that fight going into it because he was on such a hot streak. And when you have that momentum going, you're not going to lose no matter what. I mean, this guy's like Hulkamania in the fucking 80s yeah. at, at this point. He was like huge, right? Now, if now Nate Diaz suffered a really nasty cut in that fight, and the fight was stopped. And the reason why I wanted to ask you this question is because you're a you're a fight doctor now. Do you think certain fighters would would kind of work the system a certain way? Like, man, if I would have gotten so and so as a doctor, he wouldn't have stopped the fight because of this cut. Is that something that maybe some fighters would leverage by getting certain doctors because they know that they will let certain things slide, whereas other doctors may not let them slide? So the the interesting thing about that is that the fighters do not pick who's the who who, who their doctor is. Oh, okay. It's just completely randomly assigned. Um, you know, the the person who made that call to stop that fight um, was uh, the guy who is the the 
the director of the New York City Athletic Commission, um, who oversees every single fight that we do. So he wasn't assigned to Nate specifically. He's assigned to every fight. So he has the ultimate decision on making, you know, if if if, if so, let's just say I have, uh, I don't know, make up a name. Uh, uh, Conor McGregor is my fighter. Sure. And I have Conor McGregor, and my partner who's sitting across the cage from me has whoever he's fighting. So I got to keep my eye on Conor and see what's going on. So if I'm assigned to Conor McGregor, my partner across the cage is assigned to whoever he's fighting, um, and that's our fighter. But the the head of the the head of the of the commission is basically responsible for all the fighters so if he sees something that he doesn't like or somebody gets knocked out he will come with us into the cage and make an assessment um so he wasn't specifically uh assigned to that fighter but he's he's still in charge of everything and he has the ultimate decision of making that decision um so the fighters can't pick their physicians even if they tried to it wouldn't be possible Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Because that's because that was something I was wondering about. Because like you see this guy get this nasty cut, and the fact that one person has this ultimate power to stop a fight. Do you think there should be like a council, perhaps like maybe like an odd number of people that can maybe like vote on this thing? Like should this fight stop now, or one person should just have the power to stop a fight? Like maybe they have something vested into this or not? I don't well, know. How you know, that, you know so it, yeah, so so you know that's that's ultimately the issue. Um, you know. People, people were saying, oh, it was fixed, it was thrown, this was happening for this, this is paid off, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's really not the case. I mean, I, New York specifically, I, I can't speak about any other commission. I have no idea. I've never worked in a commission, so I can't speak about that. But New York, it's, that's, that's really not the case. You know, I know that physician very, very well. He's my boss when it comes to all this stuff. He's a very by-the-book kind of guy. Um, and his, he's, a, he's a fight fan. He, he, he knows about the game. Um, he has no vested interest in in anybody making any money for this or for that. It's not like yeah. you know he had a Vegas you know betting odds and was like, oh, I'm gonna fucking bet the farm on this and stop this fight. You know uh-huh. his goal and all of our goals is to care for the fighter. And if you see something like a like the cut that that Nate sustained on his face, which was yeah, I know Nate cuts a lot. That thing was he- massive. It was it was you know his eyebrow was kind of hanging over his eye a little bit. you're not worried about the punch that did that, but you're worried about the next succession of punches that could potentially make that a lot worse than it was. And then, you know, worse than it is. And, you know, him sustaining something that tears down into his lid, that makes things more complicated, that now is going to affect him from opening his eye for the rest of his life, you know, for the rest of his life, who the hell knows, you know, if Mm -hmm. he would have caught, if he would have caught a head kick to that, you know, to that eye because he couldn't see out of it, that thing could have doubled in size. It could have gotten right through the lid. It could have gotten one of his lacrimal ducks. You know, it could have fucked up his eye permanently. Who the fuck knows? You know, uh, it's 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 hard to say about what would have happened. And you kind of have to stop a fight sometimes for what could happen next if I let this guy go into the cage with this injury. You know, it's not this injury, but it's what's going to happen if he goes into this with this injury. Yeah, sometimes you got to protect the fighter from themselves, man. And you oh, know, I do that all the time. That's the problem with that is that, and I told you that before, they will not protect yep. themselves from themselves. Oh yeah. Well, do I think go. that was a good stoppage? Yes, I think it was a good stoppage. Do I think they should have let that round go for a few seconds and then call it? Yes, probably. But it's it's semantics. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's all about armchair quarterback and that Monday morning, like, hey, you know what? They should have done this. Should have done that. And, 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 and I could tell you, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Internet has no chill. 
as they say in the business. Um, <laughs> That's true. The fans found out and that night it was crazy because people were like throwing shit and they were trying to kill, you know, this particular doctor. People went on the internet and did research and found out which New York State physician that was. And they basically went, you know, there's a few websites called Health Grades or Vitals where you can go rate a doctor. And they put this guy's name in and they gave him shitty reviews as a physician based on his calling of the Nate Diaz uh, fight. They made death threats to his home. They made (laughs) death threats on the Internet, on Twitter, (laughs) tweeting him, telling him, you're a piece of shit. You know, you fucking ruined this. You know, we're going to kill you. That point, they, they, he was scared for his life, um, and had to get the police involved. And I said to myself, "I wish it was me because it, you could threaten me. I'd give him a home address. Come on down, motherfucker. Let, let's see. Let, let, let's see where that keyboard gets you. Because I'm gonna shove it up your ass. Just um, give him Pop Don's address. Exactly. That's what I was gonna do. Um, Go. <laughs> yeah, I'm the bald guy with the with the goatee. Um, <laughs> so, like, this guy was legitimately getting death threats to his home. Like, I was talking to Mary Day. Like, I was worried about him because. It was like he was scared for his life because these fucking animals can't realize that, you know, his, his, it's our job, his job, to protect these guys from themselves. Like, sorry. Yeah, we stopped the fight. It was a great, it was a great fight up until then, and it was still a great fight. But that's what you got to do. You got to make a shitty decision like that. You know, it sucks, but that's our job is to be impartial when it comes to that stuff. No, and you know what, man? My favorite fighter was Roy Jones Jr., my favorite fighter of all time. And I wish someone like you were to step in and say, hey, man, stop taking punches to the head. Because this guy got knocked the fuck out in multiple countries by guys he could have scrubbed the floor with 15 years prior. And no one ever told him no. So I guess my question to you is, like, is there a certain stature of, of fame and notoriety where you won't give that honest opinion or you will see your peers not give their honest opinion because that's the cash cow. And if you stop the fight, you might not have a job or you might see yourself unsanctioned because like a Dana White or a big promoter will say, hey, he fucked up my cash flow. He's done. Yeah, listen, it's 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 always a possibility. I've been put in situations with, you know, amateur, semi-amateur pro kickboxing stuff where. You know, they're like, you know, trying to slip. Recently, they tried to slip these two guys past me that one was like 58 years old. One was like 61 years old. And I'm like, guys, I'm not letting these guys fight. They're like, oh, no, they're, you know, they're old enemies. They don't want to settle a score. I said, oh, they should have settled that score 20 fucking years ago. I'm not going to put my, you know, ability to put food on the table for my family on the line. So these two dipshits can fucking fight. I mean. Uh, there's no way I'm letting a 61-year-old guy get in the ring and fight. It's not because I'm ageist. It's because I'm a fucking realist. You know, you're in there taking shots to the head. You might fucking die. You know, unless you can go through this ris- this rigorous physical exam, get a neurologist to check you out, get an MRI, get an EKG, get a full set of blood work on top of everything that I normally make you do. And I'm able to examine you and see that you are in decent enough shape to get out there. And I'm going to tell you that at the slightest fucking hiccup, I'm going to stop this fight. Maybe we'll talk. But in reality, probably not. Um, because these promoters, you know, sometimes it was one deal that a couple of years ago with this guy, you know, this guy was trying to make his comeback and this production company was paying the promoter 10 grand so he could fight. And he was like 50. I'm like, fuck you. We're not doing that. I said, I don't give a shit what you're getting. This guy's not fighting on the card. And if you have a problem with that, 
that's fine. I don't need a, a. I don't need this money because the money that I get paid for is not even remotely worth the amount of work that I put in and the amount of stress that I fucking deal with and the amount of overhead that I got to deal with bringing supplies there, worried about medical malpractice and all this other bullshit. Not even remote people like, oh, you must be rich. You work for the UFC. I don't work for the UFC. I work for the commission and I get paid fucking nothing. Um, like <laughs> a, a hot dog and a handshake, as Papa Don says on the indies. Um, like, like legitimately, like if I work at my job for two hours, I got paid more than for fucking 12 hours working a UFC fight. And that's, and that's a fucking shoot. That's not a work. Um, so I'm not doing this for the money. So if you want to tell me that you're not going to use me, good riddance, happy days are here again. I'm fucking freed up to go do something else now. Um, so it ain't for the fucking money. It's for the love and it's for the experience. Mm -hmm. It's because like, you know, I have a passion for martial arts. I have a passion for fighting and I also have a passion for ensuring that these guys get to hold their grandkids without shaking like Michael J. Fox. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Oh boy, that's, that's a rough one. Yeah, that's dark, <laughs> eh? Too, too soon? No, of course not. Yeah, but, he's still alive. Yeah, yeah, he's still alive. But is, is there any kind of accountability that you can be held accountable for besides the medical malpractice? Like, let's say if... Uh, if, and I'm just saying you as a metaphor, like you as in any person who has your position in the, in the fight game. And can they be held any kind of accountable for like anything? Like let's say if like they didn't patch up an eye good enough or they told the guy that he was good to go even though he wasn't and he gets knocked out and dies in the ring. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. 100% absolutely. Listen, what could happen? People, people are, you know, always want to – listen, you, you, Fighting is not, you know, is not waking up in the morning and go and de- deliver the mail. You know, you're walking into a ring with someone else who's walking into the ring, and your job is to take that fucking guy and beat the piss out of them so bad that they either cannot get up or are knocked unconscious, or someone says, "All right, we've had enough." Like mm-hmm. that is the goal of this. With that said, people expect, you know, the fight doctors to be perfect and to and to be able to stop the fight at the right time. You know, people will criticize you if you stop it too early and people will criticize you if you stop it too late. There's no there's no in between. There's no, oh, you know what? That was perfect. Um, you did it just at the right time, which is very difficult to be in the sweet spot because you never know what's going to happen. Um, people will hold. I've had friends who, who've done this for years who have had people who have lied to them. So, you know, you, I, one of my common questions is, have you ever been knocked out at all when you're fighting? And it's funny because. Uh, I've, I do the same circuit all the time and guys who I've seen get knocked out six months ago will tell me I've never been knocked out. I was like, Oh, well that's pretty funny because I was sitting ringside six months ago when this guy <laughs> kicked you in the fucking teeth and you were fucking, uh, seeing grandma Betty who died three years ago, calling me grandma Betty in the ring because you were knocked the fuck out. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you tell me about that? Oh, I, f- I forgot. Oh, I didn't think it counted because no one wants to remember when they were fucking knocked out. I asked him, have you ever been knocked out in training? Have you ever been knocked out in practice? Have you been knocked out by your mother, your father, your girlfriend? I, I cannot tell you how many people tell me no. And I know they all got fucking knocked out at some point. They all got knocked out. So Because if you got knocked out last week in practice and you got your bell rung and you hit the fucking canvas and they had to you know, put you up and give you the old million-dollar man slap in the back of the neck to wake you up, um, that counts. And if you have a brain injury a week ago and you have a secondary brain injury – the damage that can be done at that secondary brain injury is far greater than if you didn't have one previously. So this is why it's important to know this stuff. And most of these guys will fucking lie to you and not tell you that. And there is no test that I could do to test that and find that out. 
Now, mm -hmm. Even a CAT scan is, will likely not tell me anything based on that. Maybe an MRI, but nobody's getting an MRI the day of the fight. It's just not practical. Um, so, you know, you're already sitting behind the eight ball with these people who are putting their life in danger more so than they need to because they want to fight. They want to fight because, you know, despite the fact that they, they got knocked out in sparring a week and a half ago. They want to fight because they got knocked out 10 times in Colombia, but now they're coming to, the, to New York City and they've never been knocked out in New York City. So I'm going to answer no to that question. They're their, their own worst enemy at times. Um, but when something goes wrong, they want to put the blame on the person who they think should have stopped everything from happening. You know, one of my friends is, was involved in a case a couple of years ago where young kid, boxer, 20-something years old, fights, he loses, he kind of looks like shit, doesn't feel so well, starts vomiting, so he's really worried about him, sent him to the hospital, they do a CAT scan, the guy's got a, a little bit of a brain bleed, he gets a little bit worse, they don't have any neurosurgery capacity at that hospital, they send him to a different hospital, and in the interim, when he gets over there, his brain hemorrhages too much, and now he's a vegetable and he dies. Yeah. So... <sighs> You know, so who's going to be ultimately responsible for it? the guy who signed the paper saying, I want to fight this guy. I know the risks and the, and the benefits of this or the guy who's supposed to be the medical professional that's responsible for taking care of that guy. You know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, your pockets look pretty deep. Let me stick my fucking fingers inside there, which is terrible. And, you know, it came out that this guy apparently had gotten knocked out a week ago, didn't tell anybody. Um, he told his family, but his family didn't tell anybody. So, you know. Going into the ring, putting yourself in danger, shit like this can happen. Happens all the time. We lost a boxer um, a couple of a couple of months ago. Um, yep. His name Day, Patrick Day, or something like that. Yep. Um, yep. Healthy guy, looked fantastic shape. I saw I saw what hit him. I would not have stopped that fight until he got knocked out that last fight because he looks like he was taking damage that he would have normally taken and looked okay. He took a punch, landed square on his fucking face, and that guy was dead the second he hit the canvas. You never know. There's nothing that I could do or the most skilled ringside physician could do to change that outcome. And as sad as that is, it's it's a it's it's a horrible reality of that sport. You know, that's how if you stop that fight before that happens, why just stop that fight? Now you're getting death threats to your home. Now you're getting people exactly. on Twitter calling you an asshole. Now you're incompetent. Now people are trying to, you know, threaten your livelihood and leave you bad grades for your patients who, you know, you're a pediatrician and, you know, Kalamazoo, see, oh, this guy's an asshole, somebody said, uh, because he People, stopped the Nate Diaz fight. You, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's, a re, it's a really a no-win situation when it comes to this. And like I said, it's not like they're paying us a million dollars a fight. They ain't, you know. Um, so the people who do this do this because they're passionate about it. They do this because they love it. They do this because they want to do what's right by the fighter and not by anybody else. And if, you know, Dana White tells me to go fuck myself, then Dana White tells me to go fuck myself. What, what's going to happen to me? I'll watch it on pay-per-view. Now, I do want to ask you about the whole knockout situation because I have two situations in mind in particular that I did want to ask you about because I want to know how knockouts affect a fighter a week before a fight. And there were a couple stories that were out where Mike Tyson got knocked out supposedly in a sparring session getting ready for his fight with Buster Douglas. Yeah. And there was a fight recently with Anthony Joshua where he got knocked out supposedly in training before he fought uh, Ruiz, I think his name was. Yeah, the first time. Yeah, and they both got knocked out in their fights. So how how does that affect the fighter getting knocked out in a sparring session? Because I know it happens all the time, and there's this unspoken thing where you can't talk about that publicly. And, and both fighters that were rumored to knock them both out, and there is footage on the Tyson one on YouTube, 
But the Anthony Joshua one, the fighter's like, oh, well, things happen in sparring. I can't talk about it. That was it. How does that affect the fighters? Is it more psyche or is it more physical if you get knocked out? Like maybe you have to get your bearings back. Should those fights have been called out if it's physical or is it more mental? Because I don't understand because I've never been knocked out before because I never professionally fought. I think, you know, if you're the top dog of the world, like a Mike Tyson, like an Anthony Joshua, and you're in a sparring session, you know, you know, typically in a sparring session, if you really want to get good sparring and they bring in somebody, they don't bring in a tomato can. They bring in somebody who is going to push you, is going to challenge you. You know, you may work on footwork. You may work on the jab. You may work on something. And if you're working with somebody who is not on your level, you try to adjust to that person's level. You try to work on something that you're not great at. So like, so say if I'm sparring somebody who's not at my level, I'm going to say to myself, okay, you know, obviously if, if I spar this guy at 85%, I'm going to hurt this kid. I'm, I, it's not what I want to do. So let me work on my jab on this sparring session. Let me try to see how many crisp jabs I can throw, how many I could do, um, and how many I can get off before he hits me with anything, how I can move, you know, let me work on my footwork on this. So you kind of adjust to see what happens. When you get to the level of a Tyson and Anthony Joshua, you know, they have to bring in guys that are going to simulate the guy that you're going to fight, guys that are professional fighters, guys that are going to challenge you. I mean, I can't imagine there's many sparring partners out in the world who would willing, willfully, you know, lace up a pair of boots and gloves and say, yeah, I'm going to go fight Tyson at 85. It sounds fucking suicide. <laughs> Definitely. You know? So, so you, you, you got to get somebody that is somewhat on their level. And, and and anything can happen in sparring, you know that 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 comment is true. And if you're the professional fighter, if you're the one who's fighting for a title, you're the one whose fight's coming up, and they bring somebody to spar you. If that person knocks you, you know, knocks you out. That fucks with your brain immensely because now you say to yourself, well, they brought this dude in for me to like, you know, to work with. I'm training to fight this guy who's probably, you know, this guy, this other guy is probably infinitely better than this fucking guy because this guy is not, is not a, uh, is not the guy I'm fighting for the belt or fighting for my belt. And this motherfucker just knocked me out. Yeah. Some people could say, okay, let me see what I did wrong and learn from it and then try again. Some people will say, fuck, I'm petrified now because this schmuck knocked me out. He shouldn't have had a chance to knock me out. Am I not eating right? Am I not doing enough cardio? Am I not doing enough speed bag? Am I not doing enough drills? Did I not prepare enough for this fight? So now you just, you know, activated every synapse in your brain to give you that doubt in your head. And it's sitting there. And it's in the back of your brain. It's in the front of your mind. It's not even in the back of your brain. And you're like, shit, I like, I don't know if I could do this. And you may walk into the fight. You may, you will walk into the every, every training session after that with this little bit of doubt in your brain. And if you feed that doubt, if something else happens, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you've already lost a fight before you've gotten to fight night. So it's it's part that. But it's also part that when your brain gets rocked, your brain gets rocked. And I've been rocked a couple of times where I felt fuzzy a couple of days later. I've definitely been concussed. And if you've had a concussion in the past and you know you played football, you played soccer, you played whatever, you you feel like you're there, but you're not there. Like... Like yeah. you're sitting in, you know, in, in the next frame of the of the of the slide carousel or the next frame of the movie, the past one, the present one, depending on which one it is, and you're just not in the right in the right state of mind. You, things that you normally would do. And a lot of people I'll bring it back to coronavirus. My mom got coronavirus. She felt like this. She felt like she had a concussion. She says, I just feel foggy. 
And a lot of people describe that when they had after they had corona is that they feel foggy for a long period of time, sometimes months, where they just don't they feel like they're concussed. And when you have that feeling, you're sluggish. The things that you would normally react to quicker, you can't react to as quick. You're not as nimble. You're not as as fast as you sh- as you would have been if you didn't get your your brain jiggling around your fucking head. Um, and you know that stacked on top of a nice heaping of doubt, you know, mixed with a little bit of gravy, will uh, want. I don't, give, I don't give a shit if you're Tyson, if you're McGregor, will bleed into everything else that you're doing up until that fight and on that fight night. Phenomenal answer, and man, like you've answered a lot of my questions with fighting, and I have so much more shit to ask you, but it's already fucking midnight here. Like we started this thing late tonight. Do you have time for a few more questions? Because I kind of. Get into the meat of your podcasting here. I, I got time for whatever you want to do. I, listen, I, like I said, I'm off for a couple of days. I require about anywhere between four and six hours of sleep a night. Not a big deal. Um, <laughs> well, but I, I, I could always come on again. Listen, I love talking about shit like this. Hey, that's what I'm saying, man. Like, I feel like two hours blew by already. And like, we've had a great conversation and I would love to have you on again. But I do want to get into these questions because like there's so much more to talk about for the next time. But these are the ones I really wanted to talk to you about. I, I wanted to talk to you about Star Wars a little bit and how the hell you got hooked up with Greek God Papadon. And, you know, like he's a conspiracy guy and you guys kind of came together with the whole, you know, uh, Star Wars love. I've watched six of the Star Wars movies, the original three. I watched the three that came after that or the prequels. And I got my mind blown because I'm like, wait, these came after this, but they came before this and all these weird things. How did you guys come together? Okay, so um, I've had a, a very long-standing love for Star Wars in the past. Um, it's been part of my childhood. I collected all the toys. It's something that my dad and I bonded over. I was a, he was a he, my dad used to own a video store, so he was like an extremely crazy movie buff. He's seen like probably every movie that's ever been made. Um, and he is an enormous sci-fi fan. So I think you know the love of comics, the love of sci-fi, all that stuff was ingrained to me from a very very young age so i've always loved star wars you know earlier when we started the podcast i had my camera on and if you saw it behind me but i have a significant number of action figures that i collect um that's all scattered across my room i collect comics collect action figures um and um star wars has always been like a constant in my life i've loved it always it's it's a passion that i've never gotten out of you know reading books when the movies weren't you know plentiful going back and watching the movies, reading the comics, doing things. You know, I was in med school when the prequels came out and um, I waited in line for 13 hours before the movie started so I could assure that I got the best seat in the house. And I had bought 48 tickets for my friends who were with me in med school who paid me. I waited in the line for that for eight hours. I was in the news. When the news toys, when the news toys came out, I was waiting at midnight at Toys R Us until they opened the doors, wearing my Jedi robes, the whole nine yards. Awesome. So, I've had a very deep love for Star Wars uh, my whole life, and it's something that's continued. Um, I met Papa Don, uh, not because he's from Queens, I'm from Brooklyn. I met Papa Don while I was doing my fight doctor stuff for professional wrestling. So Papa Don is a, is a local independent guy. He's been around for over 20 years, and he makes the route in New York City, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, whatever. So I ran into, I ran into Papa Don a lot during the shows. Um, the first time I met him, uh, was in a little promotion in Brooklyn called the Ludus, which is fighting spirit wrestling, which is the little uh, defunct right now. The Maximo brothers had started that. 
Um, and I was uh, probably one of my first or second like uh, wrestling gigs. I was still kind of new to it, but I knew professional wrestling, you know, as a fan, as as, as a smart mark, as they say. Um, and uh, I was in the basement, this horrible basement that they had in in, in this in this uh, basically garage that they did they did the shows in. And I'm downstairs, and um, I'm like the, I'm like the like the new guy in the back. And interestingly enough, like. The boys, when you're the doctor, they treat you like one of the boys, which is nice because it, it kind of like made me feel a little bit better. Um, and Papadon's there, and I have to examine everybody. Say, everybody, all right, I'm going to come to you all, whatever, you get dressed and whatever. So I'm with my fiance at the time. Actually, so my girlfriend at the time, who's now my fiance, who's the mother of my two children, my other two children, um, who's super hot. And, you know, Papadon being Papadon, <laughs> he's, he's, he's got to try to be the alpha male in every single room that he's in. He turns to me and goes, oh, you the doc? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, I like your shoes, doc. I said, oh, thanks. I was wearing sneakers. He goes, oh, do they come in men's sizes? <laughs> and I, I had known about Papa Don because you know, I was somewhat up to date with, like, you know, the wrestling the yeah. wrestling world around here. I didn't know Papa. I didn't know who he was. You know, I knew who he was. <laughs> and I turned to him and I said, uh, I can't remember what I said to him. I said some shit to him. That was also snarky right back to him. Um. And like he looked at me, I looked at him, and we both smiled at each other. And we, we, he realized that he couldn't fuck with me, and I realized that he was yeah. on the same level as I was. So, Pop and I have had that relationship from that fucking minute that we would completely fuck with each other, um, back and forth, um, and try to like you know get a rise out of each other. Um, That's awesome. And that that continued, but that night he comes out, and all of a sudden he comes out. He comes out to his entrance music starts off with the duel of the fates, which is the the main theme of the Phantom Menace, the start the first prequel movie. And I'm like, this motherfucker is using the duel of the fates. So after the match is over, I went downstairs. I'm like, let me ask you a question. Uh, you're me. You use Star Wars music? She's like, yeah, I love Star Wars. I'm like, so do I. So shortly thereafter, we became Facebook friends. He's po- he, I don't know if your friends are my Facebook, but he but he posts a lot of Star Wars stuff. I post a lot of Star Wars stuff. So. Jimmy and I kind of, you know, melded on the wrestling level because I'm a big wrestling fan. He's obviously a big wrestling fan. He's a big comic book fan. I'm a big comic book fan. He's a big Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan. So he and I have a lot of things in common. Um, and our mindset, oddly enough, we found out much better while we started doing the podcast for like the last year and change that our mindset is very similar. It's to the point where it's, actually frightening like he'll look at me i'll look at him because we do we do video audio podcast and sometimes like something will be said and i'll look up and he'll look up and we'll like lock eyes and we'll race each other to see who could say what they want to say first and it's the same exact thing um so he and i have been kind of like you know back and forth with the whole you know friends star wars i see him we talk about the kids talk about movies talk about this we talk about that so you know we chat on facebook back and forth and then he started the new force order podcast which is a Star Wars podcast, you know, it's like kind of a play on like the the New World Order, but with a New Force Order. Um, and he started this podcast with a guy named Spiro, uh, who I'll butcher his name if I try to say it. And and Ananatopoulos, he's another Greek guy, who's actually half Puerto Rican. Um, so they started the NFL. They were supposed to have somebody else join them as the third person in the first two episodes. They said, "Oh, the guy's sick. He can't make it." Blah blah blah, whatever. And then the guy never showed up, and it was the two of them. And I I'm a big podcast guy, so I listen to podcasts. I'm a big fan of Cole Cabana's podcast. I listen to the Major Wrestling Figure podcast, um, Joe Rogan's podcast. I listen to it all the time, obviously. And um, 
you know, one of my friends is doing a podcast on something that I love. So, of course, I'm going to give it a shot, listen to it. So I listened to episode one, episode two, episode three, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I would send emails into the show because it was funny. And I try to like, I try to pop Papa Don and like make him laugh on air because they read the emails on air. Try to say something stupid or something funny or whatever. And I would always pop them. Um, and I said, I said to him, I said, Pop, you know, I collect like a ton of Star Wars toys. I said, you should have me on the show one day. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about that, blah, blah, blah. So episode seven rolls around and it's, you know, he calls me that day. He's like, listen, we don't got a lot of news for the show. He's like, you want to come on tonight? We'll, we'll podcast. We'll do. I was like, yeah, of course we'll do it. No problem. Whatever. So cleared the schedule. I got in the pod. I was super psyched to get on the podcast. I had a bunch. I had already written down a bunch of questions and like shit I wanted to say to them when I got on the podcast. Cause I was listening for like, you know, almost two months at that point. Um, and I got on and naturally the three of us just really had this good chemistry and we just gelled together over Star Wars, over wrestling, over pop culture, over comics. We naturally start, I, I, me and Pop give each other shit all the time. So naturally we gave him shit. And I started giving Spiro shit. And Spiro started giving me shit. And we kind of went back and forth and, and this whole thing. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was a good episode. I had fun. We talked about where we talked about for two hours. And then I got off. And I, when I finished, I'm like, fuck, I got so much more stuff I want to talk about. Like, stuff I want to mention, stuff I want to, like, mm-hmm. tell him stories about this and about that. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to text Pop tomorrow and tell him, like, you know, I had a good time and I want to come back on whenever he wants to be back on. So, you know, I let it fester. Like, you know, like, like, a, you know, if you're at the bar and you get a chick's number, you want to, you want to call her immediately and tell her how excited you were. Exactly. Um, I let it kind of simmer for like, you know, 36 hours. And I texted him in spirit. I'm like, Hey guys, listen, I just want to let you know. I had an awesome time. It was really fun. If you guys ever want me back on, I, it's a bunch of stuff that I didn't hit. And pop was like, how about you come on next week and stay on permanently? Because, you know, I talked to Spiro about this. The chemistry was great. I think we need a third person to kind of set it off because, you know, the two people thing it works, but it's not as good as having three people. And I think we could do the segment on toys. We could do a segment on this. We could do this. And I think you bring a different aspect to the show and we could kind of utilize that to bring the show forward. And I was like, oh, boy, like I didn't expect that to happen. Like I totally came out of left field and, you know, I'm I'm a fairly busy dude. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not tooting my own horn, but toot toot motherfucker like Arn Anderson said. Um, <laughs> toot toot. You know, between three kids, one fiance, one ex-wife, I work at two different hospitals. I run my department. I do the fighting stuff. You know, I try to keep up with my own hobbies that I like to do and stuff. I was like, oh, what's the commitment? He's like, well, we record every Tuesday and we'll send each other articles and we got to do this. And I know you have Photoshop skills, so we may have to ask you to do some of the the graphics for the show. And I'm like, ugh. So, no, you know, but now, no, like, yeah. So now, you know, where that was episode seven that I joined them. And we just did episode 67 last night amongst other shows that, you know, we've done some spinoff shows, at least 25, 30 spinoff shows in the past as well where we talked about Mandalorian and the Clone Wars and other stuff like that. So sometimes I'm podcasting two nights a week with those guys. Um, it's been a pretty intense time commitment, but I, I, I could tell you that, and I'm sure you know because you do it already as well, it, it's it's a great outlet, you know, just to kind of sit back yeah, and fucking chill and just talk about it. things and what's on your mind. We, we, we tell you, obviously, to Star Wars podcast, your podcast is a lot, you know, more about different things and you can kind of bring in whatever you want to, you know, bring in that night. But we still kind of drag some of that shit into there. You know, we talked about the coronavirus. We talked about lockdown. We talked about government. We talked about this. We touch upon stuff like this, but we try to make it a little more tapered and relevant towards Star Wars um, if we can. And we'd sprinkle in some wrestling references, some pop culture references, whatever. And we just try to, you know, we wind up fucking with each other. 
and you know, listen, I've listened to a lot of other of their Star Wars podcasts out there, and I think we have a really good formula, but we haven't hit that next echelon of you know uh, increase in our in our viewership. And I think it's a lot because uh, it, we 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 may, may not be getting the hits that we need to get because it's going to be hard to recognize us as a Star Wars podcast. So we just changed the name of the podcast from the New Force Order to the New Force Order, a Star Wars podcast. You fucking dummies. So you can understand what we're yeah. doing um, and try to get a little more readership because you know, we think we have a good message. We think we, we're coming at it from a different perspective than other podcasts like the Collider podcast and the, the, the Rule of Two and other shit like that. That's a little more mainstream and straight line. Uh, you know, we don't want to be your the bro podcast, but we'll be the bro podcast if we have to. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to get at, too, is because, like, the thing that I like about our podcast, The Voices of Misery, what I do with my wife, you know, like, we can talk about whatever we want. And that's the kind of safe space I wanted was, like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can have a fighter on. I can have a doctor on. I can have a porn star on. I have multiple porn stars on. And then I can go into something else. I can talk to wrestlers. I can talk to other people. Whatever the fuck I want to do, I can do. The thing I wanted to ask you, though, is, like, Let's say the Star Wars Empire just stopped making movies for like five years. Like, what do you do with the podcast at that point? Because, like, that's where I always wanted to ask someone this question is because, like, there's so many wrestling podcasts. You yeah. can you, you can take a bow and arrow, shoot a bow in the air, and it'll land on like a thousand podcasts that are about wrestling. What do you do when the thing that you're podcasting about dies because the interest dies, your podcast dies? Like, how do you guys keep it fresh? Because you guys have a great show, obviously, and you guys keep it fresh. Like, like, what is your secret? So uh, it's interesting. Um, I, th- I think we fortunately backed a horse that probably is going to be a property that lasts into the, uh, you know, the eternity. So, I, you know, D- Disney buys Star Wars for four point something billion dollars of George Lucas. Um, you know, Star Wars land is made at Disneyland. Uh, they're making new movies, so in the foreseeable future, I don't think Star Wars is going anywhere. Um, Probably which not. Is, which is good. Um, but I, I, I got to tell you, you know, the, the shows that we do in the lead up to the last movie that came out in December were great because we had a lot of spoilers that were out. We're talking about all the spoiler shit. We're talking about, um, you know, theories and why this is going to be there. And we had this whole betting pool where we said, "All right, let's we're going to run down every character, every possible scenario, and let's bet." And then whoever fucking loses has got to buy the the other two dinner. And we did that. Um, so we're trying to make a di- – those shows were great because we had a lot of content to build to. Some days, some weeks, it's like the fucking – it's really fucking thin. You know, the content is thin. And we're talking about last week what Luke Skywalker ate when he was in uh, Dagobah with Yoda because Mark Hamill tweeted out. Somebody had asked him, you know, what was that that you ate? And that's like the news bite for the week. And it's like, you know, that's one of the news bites for the week. So it's tough because you got to you got to be able to, as Spiro says on the show, uh, make uh, make shit soup out of shit salad, which is a total fuck up, which is hilarious. Um, So, you know, we'll we'll do that story and I'll and I'll I'll present that story. and, and, And at the end of it, I'll say. Who the fuck cares about any of this shit anyway? You could tell it's a slow week in the Star Wars universe because we're talking about the fucking Stellador breadstick that Mark Hamill ate in 1983. Like, who gives a shit about that? Like, I don't understand it. Um, and then we'll spin off into some, some other rant about something else. And and oddly enough, Papadon has this amazing ability. I'll give him credit where credit is due. 
to talk about shit for two hours and fill a podcast. It's a, it's literally amazing. I told Spiro all the time, I said, like, you and I will not be able to do that. Maybe I could bullshit for a little while. Spiro will definitely not be able to do it. But Pop has this gift that he could talk about anything for two hours. You don't want to hear him talk about it, but he could talk about it. Um, <laughs> Ever undersell yourself because... Exactly, like, we've ex- exactly. We've been talking for about two hours and 15 minutes now, and this has been a great conversation, man. And you can hold your own, believe me. Trust me <laughs> that. Because like I am a host of a show that I have to never shut my mouth the whole time. And this was a nice little thing where we can just kind of go back and forth and talk about shit. So popping on... I'll tell you what, man. I've been listening to his stuff a lot lately on the Conspiracy Horseman. That man's been really good. He's been preaching some truth over there. So I've, I've definitely become a fan of his. And if he ever accepts my friend invite on Facebook, maybe we can <laughs> What a dick he is. He's always a dick, I tell you. Oh, he's an asshole. I mean, like, he's a total asshole. Yeah, he's a heel. He's a heel. Well, he, yeah, he, he lives a gimmick, as they say in the business. Um but uh, you know, I think we're going to have a lot of things to talk about, and we figure out things to talk about, and we have segments yeah. on the shows that that we do every week, where you know I come up with something, we do something from this, from that. It's so it's a uh, you know um, it's it's a rich property that has a lot of legs. It's got a lot of avenues that we can go through, um, and things are happening. Like Disney Plus is great for us because it gave us a lot more content to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, I took a trip to I took a trip to Star Wars Land, Galaxy's Edge this uh, this past summer, this past uh, sorry winter, and I did a, we did a whole show about me going there and talking about it and doing videos from there. So you kind of have to get creative with some of the content you do. Um, but uh, luckily enough, you know, it's not like the Gilmore Girls. We we're not doing a Gilmore Girl podcast where you talk about that shit all day long. I'll kill myself. <laughs> oh God. I think if you're passionate uh, about, passionate enough about something, yeah. you can make it interesting for other people, and you could find things to talk about, and you could put put some meat on the bone for other people who who are as passionate as you and share the same may somewhat share the same narrative you or may not, and they just want to hear your perspective on that. So I, I think that's why the three of us play well with each other because, despite the fact that Papa Don and I are very alike, we disagree about a significant amount of things. Um, which leads to a lot of comedy on the show. Well, that's what I admire about your guys' show is because, like, you watch one movie and you talk about it for quite a while because, like, just like you said, like, the newest movie came out, you guys had a lot of meat in the bone, and then afterwards that the movie came out, you guys talked about it. And after that, it's like we got to figure out things to talk about. The thing about wrestling podcasts that I really kind of think is a little bit easy to, to do is because every other day there's a wrestling show. All you have to do is watch the show and talk about the matches and say how much you hate it or how much you like it. It's very easy. It's very hard to come up with original content based off of something that you've seen already. And maybe something in the past. Like if I had a Ghostbuster podcast, for instance, right? There's only two movies. I don't count the woman one. That one never happened. I'm with you. So, <laughs> so we could either do like the Ghostbuster cartoon. We run through those. We run through the movies. And it's like, okay, now what? We have to talk about Ghostbuster still. There is a finite time on that because there is a, a finish date. So I think it's cool that you guys can do the podcast and just know that, you know, Star Wars is going to keep going, but you have to keep the podcast going and keep out fresh content. You guys put out plenty of content. I think it's very admirable that you can come up with new shit to talk about. And I like the fact that you guys can just make it happen. So it's really cool. We appreciate that. And I, like I said, I will give credit to credit do. Papadon is, is the brainchild behind all that stuff. And he does a fantastic amount of research sending us articles like you know on the daily basis and then we break the articles up we read them and we just kind of just chat about them when we come in and some of them are shit 
some of them are interesting some of them you know bring this political narrative of the you know sjw world into it and we get a lot of uh opinions about that and awesome. other interesting things so it's uh it's it, you know it it after 60 weeks of being with them it, it doesn't like i don't feel like we're repeating ourselves on the same thing like week after week after week which is i think it's like you said it's hard to do with the prop with with, with any property Exactly. And I do hope you agree to come on again, but because I do have one one more question for you and one fan question that just happened to get sent in for you, actually. Is it, is, is it from Big Ray? Please tell me it's from Big Ray. It's from someone. I, I can't read their name right now because of things, but I, <laughs> of course, it's from Big Ray. But I do have one last question for you before we get to the Big Ray question. Besides the Star Wars toys... And, and 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 collectibles because I don't like to call them toys. I like to call them collectibles. What else do you have in your house besides Star Wars? Is there anything else you're passionate about? Oh uh, yeah, it's a uh, Star Wars is a very small portion of the things that I'm passionate about. Um, okay. I am a big I'm a big action. It's, I call them toys. Just don't don't call them dolls, and I'll I'll be happy. Toys are totally fine. Action figures, uh, just not dolls. Um, I have a significant amount of Star Wars stuff. Obviously, that's you know one of my big passions. I also have a significant amount of wrestling stuff, like WWE stuff. Um, AEW is making new figures as well. I'm pretty pumped about those. About those, um, I have a enormous amount of Marvel and DC stuff. I do a lot of the comic book stuff. I'm just looking at my shelves right now. See, um, I do a lot of the horror stuff from like NECA, like the like the Pennywise, the Jason, the Freddy. Um, I do a lot of Transformers as well. I'm, I'm a kid of the '80s, so I love that Transformer stuff. I do a lot of the re-released He-Man stuff that they're doing, the Masters of the Universe. Um, what else am I staring down over there? There's a lot of other smaller companies. There's a company called Mezco that does a lot of Marvel and DC stuff that's kind of like high-end cloth cloth outfits, 80 bucks a pop kind of figure. Whoa. Um, I have been dipping my toes lately into the Hot Toys, which are like the Japanese super high-end figures that cost like two, two fifty, three hundred bucks a pop. Um, I'm trying to do a specific certain amount of those, not all of them because they would kill me. Um, and I even stretch back and do some of the vintage stuff, like staring at me the whole time that we've been talking is one of the, uh, the old school, um, WWF LJN wrestling figures, like the big rubbery ones that you could like, you know, throw at somebody <laughs> and kill somebody. The Hulk Hogan one that's still on the, said Hogan, Hogan, right? <laughs> Hogan on the package. I bought one like about a year ago is still staring at me right now because it's so nostalgic. The card is all yellow and about to fall that's off. Um, I've awesome. got some old Star Wars stuff in the back uh, that I've had graded. I've got some G.I. Joe stuff that I collect. I mean, my disease goes extremely deep um, and extremely wide when it comes to collecting figures. I collect comic books a lot as well. I've slowed wow. down on the comics. So I haven't got a chance to really read them as much as I do in the past. Um, but one of my main hobbies, and if you if you watch the show, if you listen to the show, you watch our show, um, one of the reasons why I agreed to do it with them is that I get to do something that I enjoy while I'm doing the podcast with them. And I've actually been doing it the whole time I've been talking to you. Um, I make my own action figures. So if let's say they don't make a specific figure that I want to make, I will collect the parts from other figures that I have. I will paint the figure you know, custom like airbrush, custom paint job. I will sculpt some parts that I need. I will take parts from other figures I need, and I will make a figure um, that they have not made yet for my collection. 
I don't sell those usually. I only sell like one or two figures in the past. Um, but I will make my own figure for a you know a character that that they have not made yet, or a different suit of a character that that they have not made yet. I am so jealous right now, and I'm going to tell you right now, we have enough content based off of what you just said for another three, four, five hour podcast because I am the biggest comic book fan ever. I call myself the nerd for a reason. I nice. love comic book movies, cards, everything, toys. But I'll tell you a little sad story really quick before we get to the fan question and, and you can get to your plugs and everything like that while in the show. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I had collections of cards. And I don't know if you remember these or not because I'm, I'm 37 years old. I was born August 24th, 1982. And I used to have these cards that were Marvel cards. And on the back of the cards, like let's say if you picked up Rogue and you looked at a Rogue card on the back, it was a Power 5. Uh, yep. projectiles one fighting styles two and and there would be like stats in the back i had the full set of those i had nfl football cards baseball cards hockey cards any card you can ever imagine and i would completely fill my little uh and there was like a binder with like card slots and you would get like one through whatever the set would be completed at like one through a thousand let's just yeah. say for argument's sake and I had so many of those. I had toys. I had comic books that were never opened. I had autographs from like a, like a Mark Texiera, who was the one who I think he was the one who uh, penned Sabretooth number one. I had him yep. sign a, a copy and all these people signing shit at toys. Guess what happened? I was 13 years old. My house. Yeah, burned. Oh, no. Yes. I was walking home from middle school and there was smoke because I lived pretty close to the school. Smoke in the air, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what the hell's going on? I'm walking home. I'm getting closer and closer. The clouds are getting bigger and bigger of smoke. And all of a sudden, my friend's mom pulls up, and she's like, get in the car. I'm like, why? She's like, get in the car. I'm like, so I get in the car. She drives me over there. My mom's crying on the corner. My sister, my brother. And they're like, yeah, the house is burning down. The only thing I think about are my rookie cards. I'm like, oh, holy shit. What happened on my cards? My comic books, my toys, my video games, everything is gone. So I've never collected anything since then because I never want to lose that. I never want to feel that. It killed it, man. So I'm very envious of you and having all the shit that you have because it's, I mean, that's fucking cool. I wish I had a lot of shit around me, but I I, I just, it killed me, man. Like it killed me inside to lose everything. So Uh, yeah, listen, uh, that's, that's always like a fear that you have is like, uh, especially, I mean, I've got a house full of fucking shit and I've got all stuff in storage as well that like, that's, probably you know this is about maybe uh a, a, a third and then you know I, I would say a, a 16th of my collection i have, I have stuff everywhere oh, and I, I think all the time and you know if anything happened you know what i would do and i tell people people like well you know if the house is burning down like what are you going to save and i said well if the house is burning down i'm going to take my two kids and throw them out the window so they're safe and then i'm going down with the motherfucking ship because there's no way in god's green earth i could ever replace all I could replace, replace some of it, but I can't replace all of it. So I'm just going to bury myself in them and die in a plastic heap. So basically, everyone out there listening here at VoicesMisery.Podbean.com, here's all the shit that he has. Needs to understand one thing. Become a doctor so you can afford all this shit. Yes, that is. <laughs> I tell people that all. I tell my son all the time. I'm like, you see all this shit that I buy? It's because I have a lot of money. <laughs> all right, Alex, man, you've been a fucking great guest. But I do have a question. From a listener, I, I I forgot what his name was already. He's a guy from New York. He wants to ask you this question. He says, Dear Alex, 
I produce your show for so long, and I've never gotten a free T-shirt. <laughs> and he says in capital letters, where the fuck is my free shirt, Alex? Okay, Big Ray, uh, I'm going to answer <laughs> this for you one more time. Big, shout out to Big Ray. Big who, Ray Hernandez. Who we tortured to death as a producer of the Do Force Order. He basically became like, you know, one of the characters on the show who we used to fucking like just kind of poke fun at and rib a little bit. And he used to throw his own commercials, throw him pop it on the bus, which was hilarious. Um, but I used to give him because we run our show like a morning show. We kind of drop in all these like movie clips and quotes and other shit inside there because Papa Don has this retarded brain that can like, you know, recite any movie quote imaginable. And he makes me write it down. Then I have to go on YouTube and find it and find out where it goes in the podcast. But before I did that, I used to just send Ray about a roundabout time where this clip should go. And he used to make Ray take every hours to produce like a two hour show, like five hours. So he used to fucking hate us. And then we had, you know, he produced us and he's like, I don't have the time. I can't do it anymore. And then we went to somebody else and he went back and, and we always wanted to get him because we have shirts printed up. But the problem is that Big Ray has got to hit Stevie Ray, has, has got to hit Stevie Richards fitness a little bit more because he needs a double XL and we only have XL. <laughs> so I'm not sending him a sh an XL that he can make a stringer out of it and walk around with the NFL stringer at the Gold's Gym. Ray, the next batch of shirts that we make, I will promise I will make you a double XL. I'll put producer on the back of it. Unless your ass could fit into an XL, which will send you immediately, because I know you're still hot about that. We still love you, brother, and we miss you on the NFO. Well, supposedly he's lost a lot of weight, so he might need an XL and not the double XL. Tell me that today. I will send him one tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll have a message you personally, man. What do you want to plug? What do you uh, got out there, brother? You know, listen, our big thing is the New Force Order. So, you know, our podcast is the, is the New Force Order, a Star Wars podcast. You can find us on Podbean. You can find us on the Hot Mean Media Group. We have our own Podbean page. We're on iTunes. We're shortly going to be on Spotify and iHeart and all those platforms. So we're there. So it's the New Force Order podcast. Find us there. We're on Instagram at New Force Order, no spaces. We are at uh, Twitter at, uh, hold on a second here, because we have all different handles, which is fun, at NFO underscore podcast on Twitter. We are also on Facebook at Official New Force Order. You can follow the three of us, me, myself, Spiro, and Papa Don there. I personally have my own Instagram accounts. I run an account called Dr. Dr. Underscore Destroyo. D-E-S-T-R-R-O-Y-O. That is my fighting name. Alex Dr. Destroyo Arroyo. Um, it's perfect. Um, that is my Instagram account. Uh, my Facebook is Alex Arroyo. My in my Instagram, my uh Twitter is Alex Arroyo MD. I do a lot of kind of medical stuff there. I do a lot of NFO stuff there as well. Um, so if you want to see some cool medical stuff, I'm on there as well. Um Otherwise, that's it. I mean, I don't got a lot of other plugs. You know, I'm not going anywhere these days. I'm just kind of hanging out with the kids and the fam, just chilling. But, uh, you know, the new Force Order is where it's at. It's where you can hear us every week slanging our Star Wars stuff. New, 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 new Force Order. I love exactly. it, man. And, yeah, we're at hackerhameen.podbean.com as well every Sunday doing the Voices Misery podcast. You can check out the new Force Order. They put up multiple shows a week. They do some good content. I suggest you guys check them out. And holy shit, Alex, man, you got to come back again because there's so many more pages of notes to go through, so many more things to talk about. And I appreciate you for coming on the Voices of Misery podcast, brother. 
Yeah, man, I'm glad we can get this done finally. And we talked about it for a little bit, but uh, I am more no. than happy to come on and talk about whatever. I appreciate you, man. And thank you guys. And go follow him in a new, 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 new force order everywhere. For life. For life. Anywhere that you can find the new first order, hacker, I mean, that podbean.com is always the best place. And please subscribe and give a five-star review. Later. Hey, everyone. This is Stevie Richards. When I'm not doing Stevie Richards Fitness, well, actually, when I am doing Stevie Richards Fitness Resistance Band Training Programs, I like to listen to my friends on the Voices of Misery podcast. They talk about literally everything and anything. Some stuff that might offend you. So if you're not easily offended... Don't subscribe because they say whatever is on their minds is actually actually subscribe, subscribe. Anyway, you might learn something and check them out anywhere you can download and listen to your favorite podcast. And of course, check them out at voices of misery dot podbean dot com.